Welcome friends, you're listening to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, we're taking our final look at Moorcock in RPGs, at least for now. The third part of this triptych includes a good gab with Rob, aka Menion, host of the Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy podcast, as we pick up on a brief Twitter conflab he started about Mike's influence on Dungeons and Dragons. Then I'll be joined by some of the crew that laid themselves open to an experiment. When we took our first look at Stormbringer, the role-playing game last year, Loz, Phil and I made a few observations about Games Workshop's version of the third edition of that Stormbringer RPG by Steve Perrins and Ken St. Andre. That, whilst not really chiming with something that we felt was exactly more cockian, it did make me really want to run it as written. Well, we did so, and some brave players put themselves forth to subject themselves to my rusty games mastering. Neil, Norman and Graham gamely share their thoughts not only on Stormbringer 3rd Edition, but also on what they'd like to see from a game that really explores Mike's oeuvre a little bit more. Around about the time these segments were recorded, Loz and I were invited to play an introductory game of Houses of the Blooded, after we had a quick Twitter chat with Tanya Floker. Now Tanya's used that game in the past to run a game based around Melna Benayan nobles, and I have to say, I thought it was really terrific, as were the other players. So thanks Tanya, it was really incredibly generous of you to offer, you were a great GM, and the experience really made me think about narrative story-focused gaming in quite a different way. Also, following our last RPG-focused episode with Ralph from the Fixoplasm podcast, I played in his Stormhack convention game and had a great time, also managing to put some faces to Twitter handles along the way. So, it's been a very gamey few weeks here at Derry and Tom's, but soon we'll be getting back to the grand Moorcock reread. For now though, join Rob and I in Derry and Tom's as we take one last journey, for now at least, into Moorcock's influence on the world of gaming. <laughs> Okay, I'm back in Derry and Tom's roof garden, and Ralph has just gone down in the lift, and who popped out of the other lift? Well, it's Rob, a.k.a. Menion, a.k.a. host of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy podcast. Welcome, Rob, to Derry and Tom's. Uh, nice to be here, yeah. Um, I feel really nervous now. That was a really professional introduction. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry because I've had a couple of breakfast beers that it sounds that way, so right. I wouldn't worry about it. The, the professionalism will soon slip, I'm sure. Oh, that's... Oh, thank goodness for that. So, a few weeks back, you uh, posted something on Twitter that started us having a conversation that I think prompted us to to set this up and have this conversation, because of course, as you know, we did an episode last year on Mococ and RPGs, and we're following that up shortly. But, first of all, whenever we have a new guest or co-host, the initial question, as always, is, what's your history with Mococ, Rob? My history with Mococ? Um, I think the first time... I probably saw Moorcock's work, or something to, related to Moorcock's work, would have been in the uh, the Deities and Demigods book for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Very fitting. The, I don't know. Yeah. You probably can't see that because of the green screen. And it's a blue book. <laughs> yeah. So um, is that the original uh, edition with with Elric? In that's it? not the. It's not the posh one. Oh. No, this is one. This was printed in 1980, and uh, maybe we can talk about this if you haven't talked about this previously. I can't remember if you did, but um, for uh, contractual reasons. It was um, chopped out of the book, mm. and this is um, published in May 1980. Just for those listeners who aren't RPGers, uh, because we do have <laughs> listeners who, who don't fit that central point of the Venn diagram, Deities and Demigods was a source book, wasn't it, for, for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons? 
in the late 1970s and um, it had all sorts of bits and pieces in it explain what what the history of those kind of forbidden portions of deities and demigods were that became almost legendary because they were removed um this book was published as i said like in may 1980 or roundabouts that time and um According to like um, interviews that I've heard from uh, James Ward and Robert Kuntz, who the Rob Kuntz, who are the people that um, put this together, this book together, um, they had basically permission from Michael Moorcock, and also from the um, was it Lovecraft, mm. H.P. Lovecraft um, Foundation or whoever's in charge of the uh, that IP to use uh, Melnobonium Mythos and the Call of Cthulhu, the, the Cthulhu Mythos in, in this book. Which otherwise is, uh, for people who don't know, it's full of, it's mostly real world uh, mythology and legends, heroes and gods Mm. uh, from Celtic mythology or Indian mythology, uh, Egyptian and Greek and all these things. But there's a few that are from, uh, drawn from uh, literature. And one of the ones that I didn't get cut in the end, I'm kind of jumping forward here, but it was the uh, New new One Mythos. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's the Fritz Lieber, uh, Grey Mouser. Yeah. Um, and Fafard, if that's pronounced correctly. Yeah, I, I have always know. wondered myself how do you pronounce it. it. I've I've no idea. <laughs> new one, new one, no, right, no clue. Right. But then it, it, it <laughs> wouldn't be heroic fantasy if you didn't have problems pronouncing certain things. Yeah, as we know, yeah. as we know. Yeah. Right? I, I'm not even sure if I pronounced Melnibonian correctly. <laughs> let's just say you did. Right, let's just say I did. So, so um, the first and second printing had these two sections. The the Cthulhu mythos and the Melnobonian mythos, because apparently they had um, permission directly from Moorcock, actually, with regard to the Melnobonian mm. one. Yeah, he said, oh, sure, sure, go ahead and use it, is what I've heard. Mm. And then there was a problem with another company. So TSR was the company that was um, that held the rights to Dungeons & Dragons back in the day that was printing this material. And there was another role-playing game company called Chaosium Incorporated. Chaosium is still around today, and they produce games like, well, Stormbringer, mm. which you've talked about before, uh, RuneQuest, Pendragon, and uh, also Call of Cthulhu, mm. which is, again, uh, Lovecraft. So there ended up this kind of, seems to be, well, we don't know if it's a really a spat, but there was some kind of problem relating to the who owns the actual, who owns the rights to Cthulhu and Melnibonian, you know, the, the Elric stuff, you know, the mm. Stormbringer and all that. And something happened and it was dropped mm. in the third print. So this is the third print. That's right. your answer. So it's yeah. not in here. But why I know it's the third print is because it still says it's in there. So in the preface, it says, thank, it says, special thanks are also given to Chaosium Inc. for permission to use the material found in the Cthulhu mythos and the Melnibonian mythos. Right. So okay. that was put that that meth- message there was put into the second and third prints. The second print still had that those sections, but the right. third print like this, it's missing. Yeah. So it's like a real oddball um, book. So there's one other thing that may be worthwhile pulling out of this is is a, a comment by James Ward, who's um, luckily is one of the old guard that are still with us today and uh, still making games. Mm-hmm. Um, he says. Alignments were perhaps the hardest AD&D concept to, de- concept to deal with and the one that will have the most debate among the interested users of this work. Beings like Set, Loki and Ariok are easy to classify, but when working with the middle-of-the-road deities who are often chaotic but known for consistent kindness, 
or were rogues of the worst sort but very companionable, it became necessary to consider them as a whole to make a judgment, blah, blah, blah. Right? Yeah. But I love this. Um, he's saying, well, Ariok's really easy to judge, and I'm assuming they put him into chaotic evil or something yeah. like that. But yeah. but the, the whole problem... Uh, call, we can call it a problem, uh, not necessarily a bad problem, but the issue, the problem of alignment really starts to become apparent in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons because before this, you had law yeah. and you had chaos and you had neutrality, which is, you know, really um, Michael Moorcock. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll leave off the days and demigods there for a moment. <laughs> That's one of the interesting things that often pops up when people talk about the influence of Mocock on role-playing games, and particularly and D and D in particular, is the whole alignment thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And yeah. in in a way, you've kind of got to take your hat off to them for trying to maybe not implement something because I, I don't know of any other role-playing game that ever really implemented an alignment system because I think most people just cast it off as 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 either unplayable or unenforceable because you can never really keep players on track i mean there is an argument that most players at some point end up chaotic evil for whatever reason for pursuit of treasure or anything else but i think the fact that they actually made an attempt to delineate and or differentiate between the fact that some people who followed perhaps a lawful path could be good or evil and 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 that didn't necessarily dictate anything just to some extent reflect what goes on in a lot of Mocock stuff where later on Coram does find actually because Coram doesn't really recognize long chaos it's kind of alien to Vadak culture mm-hmm. but he kind of realizes that you know that there is the beings these forces of law these forces of chaos there's the balance and actually good or evil is almost irrelevant to someone like Ariok but right, also very right. interesting and I can imagine back in the day if, if I'd have got deities and demigods third edition and that text had referred to Ariok and Ariok wasn't actually in the bulk of the of, of, the, of the book <laughs> that would have sent me off on a wild goose chase <laughs> to try right, and find right, right. out what that was all about which in itself is actually very Mococcian and quite satisfying so, yeah. now, nowadays it would be a big Twitter battle, wouldn't it? There'd be lots of like complaints being <laughs> yeah. shot at a TSR. Yes, yeah, yeah, it would very much. Um, so you discovered Moorcock through uh, Datas and Demigods. This is right. I ju- that's right. I dodged the question. You did, <laughs> but uh, but that was yeah, that was probably the first time I noticed it. But I didn't know about Michael Moorcock at the time. So I remember seeing these pictures of um, the Cthulhu stuff, which isn't Moorcock. So we'll leave that there. But I also saw. Moonglum and Elric, mm. and they've got these big flares on. I think it's <laughs> the drawings are by Errol, probably Errol Otis. Right. Uh, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not. Those ones aren't. But anyway, these big flares and a real seventies kind of like um, vibe going with the the black and white ink drawings for those characters. And so I wouldn't have really known what Melnabonium was, other yeah. than it was really looked quite difficult to pronounce. Yeah. I think it had a little little accent or something. And so so. Um, some years later, my friend, uh, one of the friends that I've I role played with extensively, uh, various other games that I won't mention just now, but he he started getting the I think it was the Galance editions mm. of um of uh, the Elric books mm. and um, well they're kind of, kind of like a white background with a red probably red or black print I think it was and quite striking uh, color images on the front um, of this this kind of like weak looking kind of anguished. Uh, albino character mm. um and it was i remember it being so striking and he was he'd got the whole bunch or something and i just started reading it too and i was sucked into it because i don't think i'd read anything like it before mm. that i'd read tolkien and and tolkien you know he's writing for completely different reasons mm. and he's writing for a different audience if he's writing for an audience at all mm. 
which is arguable, you know. Um, I can't remember if it was Sailors on the Seas of Fate that mm. I read first. But I remember that the combat scenes were so bloody <laughs> yeah. uh, and so um, fast, yeah. really fast. And then the other things that struck me was this sense of this uh, doom-laden hero and that he couldn't do anything right. Mm. He, he just... He was killing the people he loved, and um, there was something, I suppose, and many other people on your show have mentioned this before, that really appealed to me, I suppose, as a, I must have been 13 or 14, I suppose, when I was reading this stuff. Mm. And and um, the person, this this the idea of, the, of a central character who is completely incompetent, <laughs> socially inept, <laughs> probably uh, appealed to me. Yeah. Um, it was exciting. And then there was this sense of being, somebody being somehow heroic, but at the same time a complete idiot yeah. and uh, inept. Uh, and also it had this sort of um, drive to it that was quite, it wasn't like anything I'd come across before. It had this like, there was something very philosophical about it as well as, at the same time as being something like um, really muscular, um, masculine and aggressive. There was also a sort of um, almost like an opposite pole to that that was that was very like metaphysical uh, and the actual reality of the world wasn't as important as that sort of metaphysical search or that metaphysical quest that, the quests or quests yeah. that Elric was on that yeah. that's probably how I came across um, Elric yeah. and I think I was hooked and I I was led on to Corum and Hawk Moon and uh, yeah. some Jerry Cornelius and all that it, stuff yeah. his characters engaging quests and we're we're just finding that at the moment that a lot of his books do devolve into what Loz and I have been referring to as quest mode for 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 a very large portion of the of the the mid the middle sixty or seventy percent of a trilogy or a quadrilogy falls into quest mode. But there's always something kind of transgressive compared to um, the other things that I was reading at the time. Um, whilst in in some cases, you know, things like the final program were were very progressive. His his kind of core fantasy quest mode stuff really doesn't fit the pattern of of anything else any, anything else comparable, and I think that's probably what made it completely stick out to thirteen and fourteen year olds of of, how, of our vintage. You know, quite apart from the fact that the combat scenes are great, <laughs> the, <laughs> the combat scenes are absolutely fantastic. But yeah, it was better than, better than Conan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Robert Robert E. Howard was was a great writer of action. But Moorcock somehow manages to distill it down even further. I mean, compared to Moorcock, Robert E. Howard, some of, I mean, you'd never say this in compar- comparing Robert E. Howard to anybody else, but some of Robert E. Howard's prose tends to be flowery compared to uh, compared to Moorcock, mm. who's who's very yeah. in the sixties and seven, early seventies at least was very driven and very direct and and very mm. to the point. Yet whilst maintaining something just completely different from anything else. Mm-hmm. Now. You have your own podcast, of course, and we've we've touched on Moorcock and we've talked about Dungeons and Dragons. But you have your own podcast, Confessions of, of a Wee Timorous Bushy. That's right, yeah. Which is really about it's your reflections more broadly on your experiences of role playing games, Dungeons and Dragons, most particularly, I think. But how did that come about? I think it's like a, a lot of um, people of our age, perhaps, and and who've come through the various interests and hobbies that we did as uh, children. And then return to those interests. So, in the case of uh, role playing games, I left the hobby probably when I went to university mm. because I had other things that were on my mind or that I was involved with. And, um, well, long story short, I mean, I traveled and I lived in different countries and I got married and I had a kid. And uh, my kid is now 19 and 
and I've suddenly for the past year or so I've had more time to reflect on things and um, I think coming back to a hobby has been a way of not escaping reality not escapism so much as trying to get back into touch with people mm. and uh, talk to people and and whether it's whether you're discussing a book or um, football or whatever it might be if you've got some kind of interest in common with other people you instantly feel a sort of camaraderie that sort mm. of um, uh, that makes other things seem a little bit more seem inconsequential and you know mm. the past many uh, past few years there have been a lot of things going on in the mm. world um in Britain or in America or where else that have been quite divisive, really, uh, mm. socially quite divisive. Whether those divisions are natural or not, well, I, you know, we don't need to go in, really. But I think getting to the game was a way of getting away from that and also saying, well, I'm not just something, a thing that goes to work and I'm not just a thing that is controlled by whatever is happening in the world. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human being there's things that interest me, excite me, that rouse my passions and that. And there's other people who are also interested in these things. So mm. I thought, well, I, I was listening to Dirk the Dice, who does the Grognard Files, like many other people. Mm, absolutely. And that, the Grognard Files, you know, as you know, is about role-playing games and rediscovering them. And um, I thought, what, what struck me about that was that he was talking about his hobby from his perspective. And it wasn't somebody like, it wasn't a documentary about these great people. It wasn't about um, Gary Gygax, or <laughs> who was the founder of D and D, if you don't know, or or, or Michael Moorcock. It was about him and his relation to his hobby and his friends and, mm. and what they were doing at that time and what they're doing now. And I suddenly sort of realised that you know whether people listen to it or not, it's kind of nice to put your history or, or your feelings, your present. Mm into some kind of coherent form and that this technology actually wasn't that complicated so you can just do it on your phone you know mm. so that's what started me yeah i think that the grognard files is definitely for me a, a real it's a podcast touchstone I'd, I'd been exposed to podcasts some years ago um, you know because we all commute and do other things and we, we've got time to kill and i always listen to music and i tried podcasts at one point but i found that the people who did them tended to have a really kind of heightened temptation to be to, to be heightened and behave in a heightened way and try and make it a performance. And I'd been listening to a couple of RPG podcasts, one of which I still listen to from time to time, actually called System Mastery, which I do enjoy. Um, but but that they tend to fall into a habit of needing to go yuck 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 on at least a regular basis. Um, even though the, they do have some really excellent insights into role playing games, and they are very amusing, they're very funny. Mm. But I found the Grognard Files was the first thing I came across, as as well as one called Space Spinner 2000, which is done by a couple of American lads, one of whom I think lives oh. in Europe. Um, and it's it's they're basically going through 2000 AD, issue by issue, or prog by oh, prog. Wow. And it's absolutely fantastic. So you've got one guy who's an American guy who's read a lot of 2000 AD and his mate, who's never read any, going through 2000 AD and prog by prog and, and it was great and I was listening to that and the Grognard Files around the same time and the Grognard Files you're absolutely right you've got a couple of guys northerners which automatically makes me feel at home just having steady gentle conversations about things that they love without feeling any essential requirement to perform they're just relaxed yeah. naturally humorous and gentle and of course, there's a whole community, not just around the Grognard Files, but there's a 
there's a role-playing game player community which consists of a lot of people i think a lot like ourselves and a lot like the grognard file gang who went through years and years and years apart from the hobby and then rediscovered it and have a joy of talking about it and i must say in the last year to 18 months particularly with everything being locked down for the reasons we're fully aware of that sense of community and that sense of being able to talk to people just like we are doing now on the far side of the world about think about hobbies and, and interests that we really enjoy is really fantastic and there's a purity to it and there's there's a real pleasure to it which i don't think i think is a combination of not just shared interests but actually having the technology available having the ability to do things like podcasts which i think is it's it's really positive. It's incredibly positive because he talked earlier on about there being a lot of divisiveness for a lot of reasons around politics, around responses to pandemics and, and everything else. But actually there are certain things which when you have common interests, all of that stuff becomes less important. And actually it just becomes about connecting. And that's that's what I think is really great about this kind of community and about podcasting in general, and particularly podcasting around specific interests. Yeah, I think the, the podcast the podcasts that I'm involved with, the most of the ones that I listen to are very. I'm not going to say amateur because that's like putting you down, isn't it? Or <laughs> dark the dice. Well, we're all down. hobbyists, aren't we? We're uh, just hobbyists. Yeah. Uh, what What I like is, yeah, as you say, that it's not it's not performance a performance. Mm. Some of them are. There's a lot of shows. Um, as you know, with role playing games, is it's becoming much more um, commercial. Uh, it's like a billion dollar industry now, isn't mm. it? multi-billion dollar industry it's a completely different world now from what it was when we when it, when we were kids and got into it whether that's good or not well you know um, I'm sure there's lots of good things about that um, it spills over but but there's also this element where people feel like they have to sell themselves and they're you have to create this polished product and mm. some people say well could you improve the sound quality or could don't you think you should um, create a more polished sort of like script and mm. all these elements where the, the people I'm involved with, particularly the, it's like the anchor, I use the anchor app yeah, uh, and the, we call them ourselves the anchorite community, the anchorites. And a lot, a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of the, what they do is they're like, they call it gorilla podcasting, Go, gorilla as in not, not as in the ape, but yeah. <laughs> as a, as in a strike, you know, yeah, yeah. as in a, an attack. And, and, and the idea is you just record, I mean, you might record when you're walking somewhere in the car, you, you throw things together. Obviously there's editing going on as well, but mm. um, you put stuff down and don't worry too much about it being a bit sloppy. Yeah. And there's a bit of a punk uh, sort of ideal, ideal, I suppose, behind it as well. Yeah. Just making your own stuff for yeah. our own fr friends and, uh, and then there's a conversation that develops around that because people mm. can call in or so I find that really exciting the fact that uh, ordinary people can take the reins and, and, and they're able to exercise a little bit of creativity in, mm. in the spaces that we have and it doesn't necessarily have to be produce any value I think that was one of the first first things that I put in my earlier podcast was that mm. the idea of producing something that doesn't actually have any uh, monetary value seemed really important to me to to produce something that had um, not to get too Marxist for you people because I know <laughs> but uh, something that has um, social value mm. but I wasn't prepared to put an actual value value on it and like a price value on it and just and just giving it out and just that that thing is um, because I work in an office and I work in a um, in, in an industry that's actually you know, uh, not to go into too much detail, but is very much connected to the commercial world. Um, 
it, it's it's nice to be able to do that to do mm. something that's sort of like you're just connecting with people as you say on a more i don't know more human human le- level i suppose like yeah i mean it's not not ideal but nothing ever it is is it mm. uh we're gonna get to utopia aren't we at some point and uh tanalor and if we can continue going this direction yeah i think um two weeks on thursday with any luck that's my projection. Um, I'm usually wrong in these projections, but I've, I've had a couple of <laughs> breakfast beers, so I'm feeling positive. <laughs> okay. What are you yeah. drinking, by the way? Isn't this about the time we, we, we trade uh, yeah. on the L's, or um, what are you drinking? I'm, I'm drinking Krugbrau Black Lager. So a while back, I went and met some friends of mine in Chesterfield. Because, of course, okay. you know, another one of the wonderful things about internet and and social media and technology is is people that you fall out of touch with for years and years and years on end. You can suddenly trip across on social media almost by accident. But anyway, um, old friend of mine, Johnny Royale from back in the day in Hull, I went to meet him for a few beers and uh, another ladder. And we went to a pub just near the station in Chesterfield. And the, it's, it's a, I don't think it's a German pub, it's a German-themed pub where you can get steins of German beer and oh, wow. um, you know large German sausages and mustard and all that. So, so it's right up my street. Because if, there's, if if you can combine decent beer and sausages, I'm in hog heaven. But anyway, they the served um, black lager. And the last time I'd had black lager was uh, Loz and I and, and Robbo, who was on our Wheels of Terror episode a couple of weeks ago, went to Prague in 1994 okay. and, spent, and spent a fortnight in Prague. And the bars in Prague essentially did two beers. Some of them only did one. They just did whatever local pilsner that they did. But some would do a second beer, and that was a black pilsner or a black lager. Mm. And I hadn't had it since then, so we were in this pub in Chesterfield about 18 months ago drinking steins of black lager. And it's, I mean, essentially it's made by the same process as lager, but it uses a certain kind of hops and and whatever ingredients to give it a more kind of roasted hops flavour and a dark And it's absolutely delicious. I love it. So I've been looking on the... We're really going off on a tangent here. But I've been looking on the internet... (laughs) It's good, it's good. ...for the last 18 months to try and find black lager. And whenever Uh I found black lager, it was always out of stock. But anyway, I've been... Since lockdowns happened, I've been buying beer from a company called Beer Sniffer. (laughs) Who have a really good selection of beers. Some name, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I I subscribe to their their email list and I got... And from time to time, I'll get an email saying X is in stock, and I'll go, ooh, I do like X, and I'll buy it. But a couple of weeks ago, I got one saying um, Krugbrow Black Lager is in stock. So I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, Black Lager. So I ordered 24 bottles, and um, <laughs> and it's absolutely fantastic. So I'm, I'm delighted to be drinking a lovely Black Lager for, well, the second time in, I don't know, 27 years <laughs> so, so what, what, what does it taste like is it more so so we're really following the moonbeam roads now aren't mm. we um, what does it taste like is it more like it's obviously not like a, a stout it's not heavy it's more like a no i, I would a, say a, a it's, ca- caramel kind of lager or yes yeah, it's, it's more like um a porter but with uh, a lager like liveliness not not fizzy crap like fosters or something like that but it's <laughs> but it's got <laughs> it's it's got it's a more like it's like a lively porter mm. so uh-huh. it's um it's five percent and it's got a liveliness to it it's got a head on it and it's and it's uh it's just a cracking beer i've got to say so yeah it's it's kind of like a mildly fizzy porter can i show you show me your bowl i'll show you mine okay <laughs> That's a deal. <laughs> this isn't really helpful, is it? Because nobody can actually see this. But I'll take a well, photograph of my beer bottle. You take a photograph <laughs> of yours, and I'll put them in the show notes. <laughs> All right, we'll do it afterwards. Yeah. 
So I'm drinking. I'm drinking uh, Mugito Hop, which is a. Um, it's not actually a beer. It doesn't actually class as a beer under Japanese law. Right. So it's by Sapporo, which is one of the big three. There's actually more now. There's four big uh, beer companies. There used to be yep. just three big companies. And it, Sapporo was um, established uh, probably just after the the Russian Japanese War, back at the turn of the uh, 20th century or something like that, mm. where Japan at the time was a an ally of the United mm. Kingdom. And um, and a lot of the naval ships came from there. Anyway, um, the sailors needed beer, and they needed um, and a curry. Actually, entered via the British Navy because presumably they used curry uh, yeah. on the uh, in Asia um, or India, the Indian Navy. Anyway, hang on. So 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 um, basically, the ingredients don't qualify as a beer. Pro- presumably, there's not enough hops in there or okay. something like that. It's kind of like German law, you know, where yeah. you've got certain regulations. So it's it's five percent. It's very cheap. It's much cheaper than beer, which is, uh, you know, it's like it escapes the beer tax uh, right. it's a loophole beer. <laughs> um, and that's what I'm drinking. But it, it's um, very drinkable. It's, it's fair. Yeah. Fair, okay. Show me good. the label. I've shown you mine. You've got to show me uh, yours. Ah, uh, I see your background is messing with it. So. Oh, right, right, right. There oh, right. Know. Yeah. Sorry. If you get it closer. Right. Yeah. Sapporo. Yeah. Because Sapporo is an, an international brand as well, isn't it? I've had Sapporro over the years. Oh, probably point. is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, groovy. So, at some point, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if it, if if technology improves somewhat further, so we could actually exchange beers via the internet, via some kind of matter dematerialization or something? Yeah, I'm keeping Another my fingers, thirty years. Yeah, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that. I'll be retired by then, so I can do it daily. That'd be brilliant. Um, so, one of the reasons, of course, we set this up is you posted on Twitter a while back. We need to bring Michael Mocock to the attention of new D&D players. His books are a huge influence on D&D, Game of Thrones and The Witcher, without acknowledgement in the latter two cases, yet no one seems conversant in him. Let's redress this. So that's a key question, isn't it? It's a key question. Why has Mocock become obscure to modern gamers and even, more broadly, younger fantasy fans? Despite the fact, if you cut through modern fantasy, Mocock is written through it like a stick of rock. Yeah, um, I, I wonder if it's got anything to do with uh, royalties. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but that, that would be. I mean, is it is it cheaper to 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 publish books by lesser known uh, authors mm. who are like creating works? I don't. I don't know. But it does make you wonder because if if you go in, if I go in Waterstones in Bradford, you know, when Waterstones is actually open. But let's say for the sake of argument, I go in Waterstones in Bradford. There are fantasy and science fiction novels from the last twenty years, maybe more collections, all sorts of things. But I can't remember the last time I saw Michael Mocock on the shelf in a Waterstones beyond probably finding one of the Pyak Quartet in the contemporary fiction section. Not in the fantasy wow. or science fiction, wow. but in the contemporary fiction section. So it's 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 absolutely. I mean, obviously, when you're an old school Mocock fan who's old and grumpy um, and have and have been into it for a long time, it's easy to get infuriated by the fact that something like The Witcher gets a TV show, whereas Elric doesn't, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've talked about those mm. things before. Yeah, yeah. But in in preparation for this, I I decided to we spoke about Appendix N before. Um, in fact, we talked to Ralph Lovegrove about it uh, a while back. But I decided to revisit the appendices in D&D 5th edition, which for me oh, yeah. Yeah. is the most homogenous edition of D&D. And you know, we can talk about how, how it succeeds and how it fails and everything else you know, shortly. But 
I decided to dig out, of course, it's, it's not Appendix N, it's Appendix E in the Player's Handbook, Inspirational right. Reading. Moorcock's still on there, and it says, Michael Moorcock, Elric of Melnibonair, and the rest of the Elric series, and the Jewel in the Skull, and the rest of the Hawkmoon series. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. No mention of Corum or the or Ericos or the Eternal Champion or anything like that, but they do name-check Elric and Hawkmoon in there. So they're still mentioned, um, but I mean, if, if you go down the list, there's also... I wouldn't describe this as random, but but I would describe it as incredibly specific. August Daleth and HP Lovecraft Watches Out of Time. So Watches Ooh. Out of Time was a Lovecraft fragment that August Daleth completed. Not something I would necessarily recommend to people as great reading material, um, but it's in, for some reason, the D&D 5th edition player's handbook reading list, as is HP Lovecraft The Complete Works. So Ooh. Lovecraft... And Moorcock are still getting those mentions along with the usual ones, which I think are hangovers from Appendix N in the in, in the original AD&D, like Clark Ashton Smith and Fletcher Pratt and, and people like that, and Andre Norton, and, and of course Jack Vance. So it's mentioned in there, but has D&D 5 now got so homogenised that all trace of Moorcock has basically practically invisible you're asking the wrong person mm. i don't play it mm. <laughs> so mm. i think that's that, that again there's a generation there could be a generation problem a year so i mean i i tend to i started playing fifth edition but i, I found it i found the games that i was joining at least didn't really appeal to me mm. and i'm not sure if that was a system issue or something to do with my expectations of what makes a good good adventure and obviously mm. you know playing a role-playing game it's not like reading fiction in my opinion mm. um I, i'm happy for my characters to di- die mm-hmm. um I, I i don't need to sort of um develop a story i think i, I see things as being more of a group story when i'm role-playing mm. so i like i like to see what the group how the group survives and then if an individual does continue throughout the stories then you can see that that hero that person is a hero um, they they became became a hero through f- for some reason somehow right mm. um, developed by some kind of natural development but what I find or I found in the groups that I joined and again I, I don't want to attack people who are playing fifth uh, edition uh, Dungeons and Dragons but I, the assumption was that you were already a hero mm. and that you were a, a, an important member of the cast mm. and so it was like the assumption was that. I mean, it's very difficult. It's not easy to die mm. in the new game. It's quite difficult to die. It felt like I was, I don't know, it felt like I was being put into a story where the story's already been kind of written. Yeah. Um, and, and and if you don't have any, if there's no jeopardy, yeah. it seems like you don't really, you're not really free. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. So I'm not sure if that makes sense, but if, mm. there's, if there's jeopardy, then it feels like, there's nobody in charge of your destiny. We're getting really uh, back to Michael Moorcock, perhaps. But mm. if you, the sense of freedom, being free, and to know that somebody isn't control, you're not fated, you're not predestined, mm-hmm. um, is the thing that's really exciting about uh, role-playing games for me. The, the mm. randomness, the chaos, right? I, I do wonder but, if that's why. Because, you know, there's, there's you could think for a long time about what makes an RPG Moorcockian in inverted commas. And there are lots of games, particularly OSR games and independent games these days, that that say that they're going for more of a a Fritz Labour or Mococ feel. But I'm not sure that always follows through. Because whilst... I mean, I I think I I would tend to agree with you that 
my experience of D&D 5, and I've played it and I've run it, is that it is quite homogenised. There are things about D&D 5 I really, really like. In mm-hmm. some ways, I think the system works pretty well. Yes, the fact that there are so many safeguards there to, to remove real peril, but they're easily house-ruled away. But the, the, act, yeah. the actual game itself, the presentation of it all, notwithstanding the fact that it's... D&D is still one of the great holdouts for things where you need multiple books um, <laughs> if, if you want to feel like you've got everything you need to play the game. But even that's a fallacy to a degree. You can play D&D 5th edition with a player's handbook and you don't need anything else. The, that's true, yeah. The Dungeon Masters gave the Monster Manual. You don't need them. They're nice to have. They're not needs to have. But anyway, the, the, the entire idea of a Mococcian game, and we're, and we're finding this as we read through the books again, and particularly more so than ever with, with the Corum books, is actually... I really like role-playing games, and I think you probably alluded to this, where actually you have to re- work really, really hard as a character to make your mark on the world, and it's high risk. High risk, high reward, and if you do things wrong, there's the chance of carnage and death. That, to me, is what makes fantasy role-playing games quite interesting. That's probably why, and my Stormbringer game, players at the moment are probably finding this to their cost is i quite like games where the players are low-powered shit kickers who have to think their way around things and if they do get into a fight it's short and violent and bloody and may well end up in someone's death but actually in a mococ book the heroes are always practically invulnerable they've always got everything on their side and destiny basically directs them through a path of travel that they've got very little agency in (laughs) that's why elric is so miserable yeah that's right yeah yeah because he has no he has no um agency yeah yeah the the dm whoever's michael morcock has stolen his player agency that's right and they they end up on a railroad (laughs) they're on they're on a railroad through the adventure um, and you know, Hawk Moon is basically beholden to the Rune Staff, and undergoes a series of quests. And there's Corum is going through the same. There's always the the Deus Ex Machina of whatever demon bound or or God's hand or God's eye or magic sword or anything else that gets them through things. The drama and the interest is the fact that it, what it costs them as people, and that's what makes it interesting. That's yeah. not what role playing games are about. You know, that's not so. So, so are we? Are we saying that the null hypothesis is correct that that there is no connection between role playing and D and D and um, Moorcock, or is there something still within Moorcock that that can that that feeds into role the D and D game and, and and actually gives it, it makes it fertile. It makes it yeah. something more than just a, a story making game. It's the color and the trappings. Yeah. I think it's the colour and the trappings of of Murcock books that translate well to to, to role playing games. The the themes and um, the actual fates of the protagonists and the path of the protagonist maybe less so. But I, but I can understand why people really enjoy the Stormbringer role playing game, for example, because they love the idea of the world of the Young Kingdoms, and it appeals to them to play a merchant from the Isle of the Purple Towns. Hanging around with a Filcarian farmer, and <laughs> you know, and 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 a, a Nadsakarian beggar, yeah, Filcarian, yeah, or, or is it Pikeman or is that Pikeride? Pikeridean Pikeman, yeah, you know, that's the one. <laughs> mix mix and match. So I can understand why people want to do that, but it's, it's, that's that's not the essence of what Mococ fantasy is. But I can understand why why it's appealing to a degree. I can also understand why, as D&D, 
for example, has become more and more homogenised. That kind of stuff, that kind of detail from Mocock has got more and more lost because games have developed in a way where they haven't they haven't kind of continued down a track to make things more Mocockian. I think people are just if if you want to do something that's generally Mocock related, that's okay. But unless you are one player, one GM with a series of NPCs who come to help you out when you're in a sticky situation, that's the only way you can recreate a Mocock fantasy game. That's true of um, a lot of role playing games that try to to emulate swords and sorcery fiction, mm. right? So I I, I bought um, a game called Barbarians of Lemuria. Love do Barbarians you know, of Lemuria. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So. Mm. There's a lot of things you can do with that game that emulate do emulate that feel of the heroes and, and you have the minions that can be sort yeah. of knocked down and then the bosses that the, the villains are actually quite uh, almost as strong or stronger than the yeah. heroes sometimes and, and you can do things like spend points so that they miraculously escape or you know yeah. some you can change the you know you can miraculously find something that you need or mm. you can use hero points or whatever it is but one thing that they pointed out in the rules is that in a true swords and sorcery genre piece, you don't have the group of heroes working together necessarily. The, usually, there's one core, yeah. there's one individual, and a, a few like sidekicks. So, you know, in, in the case of Elric, you've got Moon Glam, or, mm. or one of several other people who don't last quite as long as Moon Glam, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So, it's a problem of role playing games and fiction and how they don't quite. Yeah, mesh, or at least swords and sorcery fiction. Maybe the real problem is that if you want to do a properly more cocky and role playing game, you need a bunch of characters, but one of them needs to be the hero, and everybody else needs to be the ones who hope to be alive <laughs> at the end of the adventure. <laughs> well, we can write it. Maybe that's the way. Maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe that's. I, 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 is it the original? Faster Star Trek game, and it, and it may be true of the more modern Star Trek game, the more diffuse role playing game as well. Someone's got to be the captain, haven't they? You, you create maybe. your bridge crew, but one I've of heard this, yeah. and one of them's got to be the captain. So maybe the maybe the approach needs to be, and I will bear this in mind because, of course, the the thing I said to my um, Stormbringer players is that the idea is we run Stormbringer Third Edition as written, so we've randomly mm-hmm. rolled everything, which is why yeah. the characters are all useless um <laughs> we, we we don't have a pipe man we have three sailors <laughs> a warrior and a beggar so you don't have a sorcerer even no so oh, you know i'm trying my best to make it epic and heroic actually i'm not trying that hard as they will attest but maybe the approach needs to be that you have one overwhelmingly powerful or predestined to greatness or doom character and everybody else kind of revolves around them and actually Maybe that's the approach we should take when I run the second part, which the idea behind is, and it may well be the case that on this show we have the round table with the players where we talk about how crap or otherwise my Stormbringer game was, um, that for the next part we actually set something like that up because those are the things we're going to consider. What do we want out of a Mococcian game that will tick all of our Mococ nerd boxes? So, yeah, maybe that's something to consider. Well, you've got the core hero. You've got the core hero. But you've you've got to have some kind of group, like point system, right? Some mm. kind of pool. So whether it's hope, it wouldn't be hope, right, for Moorcock, but something that lives on when well, your character inevitably dies because he's just a supporting yeah. cast member. I think for the supporting cast members, it can be hope points, yeah. but for for the core hero, <laughs> it can be doom points, which can somehow cancel out or counteract hope points. There's some kind of mechanic desperate to be 
put together to 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 yeah. do all of this. But yeah, that's that's going to be probably at the forefront of my mind now. If we're going to do something hardcore, more cocky, game wise, we need one hero <clears throat> and a bunch of people around him, most of whom will probably die horribly. But maybe so, that's again, that's is, the entertaining part of it. It's not looking too good, is it, for the the D and D and Moorcock sort of fit, is it? But uh, <laughs> to me, like D and D, if you look back at it, you know, with with Blackmore um, and David Arneson's sort of roots with his Blackmore campaign yeah. campaign that became became Dungeons and Dragons, you've got a group of useless. <laughs> um, men at arms <laughs> yeah. and stuff who they're not even level one right there yeah so the first level if you get to first level you're a veteran that's why it's called a veteran in the old game right right so you you, you go into the dungeon and most of them would have died and maybe one i think the first adventure one person got out of the of yeah. the castle's dungeon yeah and was made a veteran right <laughs> uh level one um, and so that, that that idea of having a party, a group of people cooperating to achieve some kind of goal mm. is at the core of most role-playing games. But it, yeah. it's not really, unless you're doing a solo book or a solo game, mm. it doesn't lend itself to what Michael Moorcock was doing with his with his heroes. Mm. Well, the, mm. yeah, well t- how about Tolkien, though? <laughs> well, I, I think, his I think, fellowship. Yeah, is it closer t- to the fellowship feel, you think? With, with, with I suppose... The main difference with Tolkien is that you've got multiple competent characters in the. You do have some, uh, but you have a lot of incompetence as well, right? Yeah, so so you, the, you've got, um, and and I think it fits better for a, a, a traditional RPG party, even though it is quite large because there's nine of them. You've got the you powerful wizard. Party. You haven't seen my party. I've got like I had I had uh, nine players in my party of wizard. Right, well, that's very old school. <laughs> Isn't it? That's very old school. Now so that's let's online. Say, so let's say that is a, a, a contemporary role playing game party. Then is that <laughs> D, D, in D and D five E? Yeah, in D and D five E, they would all be completely balanced and they would all be powerful to some degree. Yeah. So I mean, what what have you got in the in, in the fellowship? You've got four hobbits, all of whom are useless, pretty much. Yeah. At yeah. any given. Although point. they're the core members, they're the core members. They're the core members, but they can sneak no. and you know, and if they're not acting like fucking buffoons. They do have certain capabilities which could come in handy if there were yeah. buffoons, and they can um, they can they can pass themselves off as orcs, which is one of the things that actually get keeps keeps them alive. True. true. And again, yeah. what, why do hobbits look like orcs? This is a really interesting. But you know, we, we well, I think let's it's not not touch on the orc question. Yeah, I, th- I think <laughs> it's probably because the wore an ostentatious hat or something. <laughs> I think it's the size, or, or yeah, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, it's a curious thing, though, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but you've got the, you know, you've got the, you've got the, the elf with the bow. So you've got the Aragorn's always the ranger, and he, but Aragorn isn't. Aragorn's just hard, and he can do a bit of tracking, and he's got, oh. and, and he's good with a sword. But you've got, you've got the elf with a bow. You've got the dwarf. <coughs> you've got the wizard. You've got Boromir, who's another warrior. So actually, the, the more you think about the fellowship, you might think actually that's, despite the fact you've got an over preponderance of halfling rogues, that's that's actually quite comparable with mm-hmm. with a D and D party, you know. That, that, so yeah, that kind of works. Yeah. So I, I can I can understand why, in many ways, the whole structure of of the the fellowship works well for for being like sort of the source material for a D and D game. It doesn't really work in practice because the fellowship only stay together for about thirty seven seconds before they all split up like a typical party and get into their own adventures, which would be a nightmare for a for a games master. So that works to a degree, and I think Tolkien is still massively obviously evident in D&D of, of any edition. Mm. You know? And I think Tolkien always will 
because by dint of the fact that it's Tolkien and it's the Lord of the Rings and it's the Hobbit and the movies are so popular now, I think that will always be. And and I'm I'm not gonna get upset or annoyed about it because I like Tolkien as much as the next man. I, I don't kind of subscribe to the Mocock versus Tolkien thing. I think you can quite happily like them both. I think it's a happy yeah. I think it's a happy yeah. sort of law and chaos sort of uh, yeah. yeah continuum, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I, I can understand some of um, Moorcock's criticisms of Tolkien and some of the other criticisms of Tolkien, and but you know, it's 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 a product of its ta- of its time. It's still unbelievably rich and and fertile ground for for you know for for fancy writers and fantasy gamers. So you know, I'm I'm all for a bit of a bit of Tolkien, and as it happens, mm-hmm. Tolkien probably still is sixty to seventy percent of the DNA of D and D. Right, so. So, Unless you start digging into things like the fiend folio, I mean, I mean, one of the things I love about D and D, the fact that it, the, the, the still to this day persevere is things like uh, black puddings and gelatinous cubes, which are <laughs> pure D and D, aren't they? The, the, the great it. thing about yeah, those is it. they they are part of D and D's own identity. So D and D does have its own identity in certain ways, which I, I, I which I am quite happy about. I do. Yeah, it's got its own feel. It, mm. Its aren't quite. They aren't definitely aren't. Uh, Tolkien's elves. There's something mm. a bit odd about them. They're a bit sort of, uh, well, especially in the older editions as well. They're pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty banaf, right? Mm. <laughs> a lot of these uh, the demi-human races were, yeah. were quite quite weak. Uh, I mean, they were good at first level, but they, they had the level caps. Uh, oh yeah, the they did, of course, like in that. basic D and D, didn't they? It's like, yeah. yeah, you can play one if you want, but you're going to be rubbish in six weeks' time. <laughs> <laughs> if, well, if you ever get to that level. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So Moorcock, Moorcock, right? So he's writing about one character who is, I don't know, is Elric or any of these people? Are they every an every man or do they? Do they? Well, this, this is the other peculiar. Do they symbolise humanity or some some? This is the other peculiar thing about Moorcock's um, criticisms of things like Tolkien, isn't it? Is is actually when you look at Moorcock's protagonists, for the most part, they're always inherently powerful, uh, noble, noble, yeah. Noble, um, yeah. Uh, uh, pe- people of power and influence who just happen to, you know, I mean, El- Elric is is a noble of power or influence who just thinks that the rest of the Melnibonians are a, a set of decadent wankers, you know. But 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 he himself is just a goth emotine, um, rebelling against. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what 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 is really his identity, right? It's what, yeah. It's his, what it, yeah. yeah, he's as much a Melbonian as any of the others. He's as he's as uh, decadent as the rest of them, really. But he yeah. he just wants to indulge it in different ways. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's very curious, isn't it? Mm. And reading it again after all these years, it's um, it um, there's other there's certain things that you notice that you would never have noticed back then. So you got this one guy, right? And it's obviously doesn't that doesn't fit. But you do have the law and chaos, which I don't think Moorcock didn't come up with that originally did he i mean he um, wrote he developed it quite a lot he, he developed multiverse it. yeah which is um, another D kind of like trope isn't it but yeah and, and, and he did he did kind of coin and popularize the the multiverse even as an expression i think he was the first person to actually use the expression multiverse in the black corridor in about 1962 or three i or was it the sun was it the sundered worlds it was one of those all right so we we've established that um Swords and sorcery isn't necessarily a good fit with D and D because D and D is its own thing. Mm. Uh, we've we've only talked about D and D. We haven't actually talked. Well, you've mentioned Stormbringer, but we haven't talked about like Warhammer, which mm. is um, quite closely linked in a lot of ways to both D and D and Michael Moorcock, particularly yeah. with the the use of chaos 
that became a problem later on. But yeah, chaos and law, we t- I talked about right at the beginning, right? And yeah. uh, the idea, the original idea of alignment, the meaning of alignment, which is something I try and re- remind people about on Twitter uh, when they talk about how ridiculous a concept it is, is that mm. it's what side you're aligned with. It's mm. it's just a very simple concept. Um, so, you, so in the so original I'm, form, you have chaos law and neutrality, but it became yeah. something much more complicated than that later on. So as a GM, do yeah. you how much emphasis do you play place on characters play into alignment I, I, well um it depends which system i'm using is mm. that a cop out so um i prefer to use the systems that use something like law neutrality chaos uh, at the moment because yeah. it, it's not simple it's really difficult to define what is good and evil when a lot of your actions anyway are going to involve acts that are quite at best um dubious morally dubious a lot of things that uh adventurers get involved with the whole idea of an adventurer you know taking these risks and doing these things Mm -hmm. uh, taking people's lives is is at best morally dubious but at worst yeah there's a lot of evil that you could um, ascribe to those actions but they by by running away from that by escaping from that and seeing as alignment as which side you're on in a cosmic some kind of cosmic conflict Mm -hmm. and probably most a lot of players will just be on fall on the neutrality side of neutrality because they don't have any or haven't realized they have a stake in it unless they're pushed yeah. due to yeah. some kind of so it, the typical world in a D would the chaos chaos would be the problem right or warhammer yeah chaos would be the side that is is warping reality to such an extent that you can't be neutral anymore perhaps perhaps mm. you have to either side with law or completely switch to law in order to right the balance which is great for driving a game yeah the concept it's great for driving a book and it's also great for driving a game because then you i don't think it's as simple as um well we've dehumanized them by using alignment i think mm. if, if in the story's world if law turning it around if law is somehow creating a, a world of death mm. and stillness where there is no change i think all of us could agree that's pretty evil right an evil world yeah. and so reacting uh, responding to that and and trying to keep your freedom, keep keep the world as a living um, system mm. that isn't frozen, <laughs> would be morally correct. I think um, you've just you've just um, come up with the second key consideration for that essential elements for a Mokokian game. Okay, mm-hmm. so fir- so first of all, we've got to have we've got to have the key protagonist and the group of people who surround him to help enable his destiny the second thing is the players or the characters have got to have some skin in the game so alignment can't just be a standalone thing and i'm not suggesting that you would use necessarily alignment as you know the the D &D Mm -hmm. take on it in in a mokokian game but you've got to have those forces at play and you've got to have characters who have some meaningful stake in proceedings as to whether you know that they support this key protagonist for want of a better expression, in their journey from where they are now to their ultimate destiny, which is either to overthrow the forces of chaos or overthrow the stagnation <laughs> of, of law or the straight arrow or, or the forces of the singularity or, or, or what, what, however it may be, or, or maybe just to, to, to maintain the balance. And I think most of the Mocock-driven Chaosium games were all about 
you you know it's all about the balance so you had i think in one variation of the game you even had law points chaos points and balance points which were allocated depending upon what kind of activity was undertaken but i think that mechanically that was more driven by if you do something evil you get a chaos point whereas if you do something good you get a law point whereas actually it should be about driving towards some kind of culmination of some kind of overriding plot or direction for the narrative and i think that's where ad&d falls apart Mm. or modern fifth edition dungeons and dragons because you have the nine point alignment system and and it's it's pulling in all these different directions Mm. so it's not really pulling in any direction Mm. half the time or you know are we all fighting chaotic evil (laughs) yeah um and 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 so it's difficult to police alignment and do you want to police it anyway so it's easier to sort of so a lot what a lot of people do now is just throw alignment out of the window which is i think i think that's a shame because it also gets rid of something that's really essential to D&D as well. Mm. I think the alignment, just like hit points or armor class or um, class, mm. fixed classes are like archetypes or race, whatever you want to call race now. Um, you know, we can change the names. I'm open to change. Sure. Call in. But um, but the, these sort of archetypes, these characters, they're, they're exciting and they, they, they give D&D a flavor that is uh, kind of like um, a fictional world, a fantasy world of its of its own, right? Mm. But the original alignment system, that three point alignment system, it, it's it's a interesting idea, and you can change the names, obviously. So mm. you you could have good and evil. You could do what you want, right? It doesn't really matter. And it may mm-hmm. perhaps the Tolkien, we're looking at good and evil. And recently, from my readings, I've been doing a load of reading of Tolkien recently, and it occurs to me that it, very few of his characters are actually good. Um, especially in the older work, um, the Silmarillion and the more uh, sort of the later works, a lot of them are very troubled, difficult characters. Mm. This idea of black versus white, Tolkien uh, talk, writes about good versus evil. That's not actually what he's doing there at all. Mm. I think. I think his concept of evil is where nobody has choice. Um, orcs don't have a choice. They have not. They they have been ups. They are they are slaves of the Dark Lord. Um, there's a point at the end of the story where they ki- kill Sauron and the orcs are thrown into confusion because they're mm. no longer under the Dark Lord's domination. Yeah. They're suddenly free. They don't know what to do. Yeah, And it, obviously the, he calls his peoples the free peoples. Mm-hmm. So there's this sense of uh, freedom being good, the freedom to choose. And there's no, you know, there's no priesthood, right? There's no real kind of gods or priesthood there telling you what's good or bad. Mm-hmm. But you, you, the important thing is that there's some kind of free will at, at play, and then there's it, the the more you stop taking responsibility for yourself um, and you fall under the domination of others, mm. that's evil. Mm. That that's that's how I've recently started to interpret uh, Tolkien, and I don't think that's me reading my own um, desires into his work. I think that's really really no uh, I, co- I think, core. I think- I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the Silmarillion is basically a catalogue of conflict. <laughs> it is, it? And, and, and screw-ups. Yeah. Yeah. Messes. Yeah. And, Even and Galadriel is, is, does some uh, terrible things in yeah, the and, original and version. Pe- personal agendas causing terrible consequences. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's that's why I really like the Silmarillion. But I think what, one of the reasons he hit on an absolutely almost unassailable immunity in terms of being the fantasy classic 
is over all of his redevelopment again and again and again and again of the story and whether this was accidental or deliberate or, or whatever or just the, the, the result of, of a lot of development was he hit on a couple of things which became absolutely key tenets of genre fiction but not just genre fiction all adventure fiction was the big bad and the MacGuffin and and he established the big bad <laughs> and the MacGuffin which basically mm. drive I don't know 800 pages of adventure um, until ultimately it all gets solved and a deus ex machina, the eagles, rescues the heroes. So he, he kind of hit on that, and, and just about everybody who has kind of produced fantasy fiction ever since then, of, of a more kind of uh, uh, generalised nature, has, has kind of gone in that direction. And that's why fantasy fiction has moved towards things like multi-part epics and, and everything else, and, and had kind of moved away from, I think, what... Things like Fritz Leiber and Moorcock and, and Robert E. Howard and other people were doing was really all of their fiction was often con- consisted just of short vignettes. Yeah, self-contained stories. Yeah, um, yeah. About individuals. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if if you read the Coram novels, he's really a passenger passing through a series of psychedelic vignettes. Mm. But he's he's kind of it's how he responds to everything, and it's and it's his response to I think I think Ralph, Ralph described it as. Um, you know, Coram kind of is is faced by a, a succession of um, chaotic forces, and all he does is admonish them. It goes through a series of of psychedelic experiences, gets first to first with them, admonishes them, and then his powerful artifacts do what they're going to do anyway. He's just the wielder of them, and and that's that's what makes it more interesting, I think, from from that perspective. It just makes it a little bit a little bit different. Whereas in Tolkien. It appears that everybody has a great deal of urgency, and it appears that everybody has a, a great deal of, of impact upon how things pan out. But ultimately, they're still all revolving around this central MacGuffin, um, yeah, yeah. and 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 that's what gives this 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 feel of epicness. And also, throw in a few good battles. Can't go yeah, there's wrong. a lot of yeah, well, there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of padding there with the battles. Yeah. So, do you think do you think that the, both Tolkien? I don't I don't think anybody's talk, talked as much about Tolkien on on your. On a Moorcock podcast ever before. It it, it was bound to happen eventually. Um, (laughs) And, you know, now is as good a time as any because we're talking about fantasy and role playing games, aren't we? I don't see a conflict here, but I wonder if both of them are are looking at problems of their time. Um, So so you've got Tolkien, who is uh, growing up at the the beginnings of modernity, and he uses modernity. People often see him as being anti modern. modern, but he often uses modernity in his art styles and his uh, prose styles. Mm. Uh, so it, it's not as simple as one might think, right? Mm. Um, but what what he, he he's faced with two large conflicts in his write, written career, the, the First World War, the Second World War, and the impact that had on his life. Um, he, he wrote something about all his friends being, none of his friends surviving. Mm. I think all of his friends died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were just young people. And I think that must have really um, stuck with him for the rest of his life. I'm, I'm certain of it. And mm. the fact that he was injured and taken was off, uh, taken out of combat, and his unit was pretty much decimated. I think. Mm. Um, mm. And of course, then his son was sent off to to war to f- uh, fight against the Nazis, and, mm-hmm. and he was an anti-communist, of course, right? Mm. So his in his worldview, he sees different forms of modernity, I don't know, coalescing into uh, authoritarian 
of course, you know, the guy's a conservative royalist and, yeah. and, and a Catholic, but it, but to him, those things are natural, the mm. natural order, I guess. And he sees these other new monsters uh, of communism and national socialism, fascism, mm. um, suddenly coming here and, and taking away, I don't know, changing the world in a way yeah. that isn't like, you know, this sort of nice little sort of English country garden view that he's he wished he could have continued living in yeah. as England has been changed forever you know yeah whereas Moorcock sorry sorry yeah Moorcock just quickly Moorcock he is like um right in a different time he's in the 60s and 70s and he's seeing these very complicated conflicts where mm. it's impossible to tell who's on the right side the wrong side mm. um we've got the, the Korean war when he was probably growing up I knew he would have experienced. I think he experienced the Second World War, didn't he? The the Blitz and stuff. So I think he yeah, talked he, about that he, previously. He, he grew up in the in the rubble of London. Mm-hmm. So uh, and Vietnam um, and the protests against Vietnam were happening at that time, and, and mm. um, so it, the, the, his his view of chaos and law perhaps is sort of like um, informed by the world as he saw it. So both of them are writing about these these conflicts around them and using fantasy as a as a means to make sense of it yes yeah, yeah. And i think yeah. it's it's you know there's been that autobiography film about tolkien recently which i've not, I've not, I've not watched I've, it yeah i've not i've not seen either it's it got quite a lot of criticism but but i think it's now quite widely accepted that tolkien's view of the world certainly as a young man was formed and his view of technology was formed by mechanized combat and the effect it had on his generation which is which is you know absolutely fair and nobody can argue with that i think where it gets particularly interesting for me and this is the beauty of fiction and this is the beauty of reading and this is the beauty of individuality and how people respond to the the things around them their own experiences and what they identify within fiction I suppose I, I always draw this podcast at some point back to my granddad Pops, who gave me all these books in the first place in the early eighties. Now Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings and was massively informed not just by all of the Norse um, mythology and everything else, but but also and, and folklore, but also particularly by his experiences of, of mechanized combat and the deaths of his friends and, and, and everything else. So you would expect somebody who experienced something very, very similar, who went to war in a a massively mechanised war, who lost lots of his friends, and who, um, by the the 1960s, in Pops' case, he had a a photograph on his um, organ in his living room, their best living room, which we never used to go see. But it was a photograph of him and 15 or 16 other guys who were part of his, his company or section or whatever it was, his immediate comrades and they were all he, dead by the sorry 90s. was he in the army was he in the army? yes he was yeah they were all dead by the 60s that they didn't all die in the war but the last one to die died in the early 60s in a car crash so from the early 60s onwards everybody in that picture apart from him was dead and by the 80s is giving me all of these books so I, I i could completely understand if pops had have super identified with tolkien mm. because of because of, pops didn't do tolkien at all pops did yeah. moorcock fritz Leiber, sven hassel that's that's what Pops did. So Pops had this experience of mechanised warfare. But this this is why everything is so beautifully individual and this is why reading tickles different people's fancies. So Pops was much more inclined to identify with something like um, Moorcock, where the characters have no agency and they're carried along, but Moorcock does some kind of exploration of the human condition mm. in some way and some kind of investigation into why people end up being forces of 
fate or destiny or chaos and doing fucking awful things mm-hmm. and and that and that was his bag i mean my other granddad barely read at all so i can't really compare to how how he was with with my other granddad but this this is this is how great fiction is and this is how great fantasy fiction is I love them both. I've not had the. I never had the experiences. Pops had. I never had the experiences. Book. I had grew up in grow, growing up in the Blitz and in the rubble of London, and I certainly never had the experiences that, that Tolkien had. But you know the fact that we can kind of discuss them, identify with them to some degree, and actually vicariously experience how these things made them feel and how they thought about these these things like war, and death and destruction is one yeah. of the beauties of this kind of fiction, and one of the reasons it I love is. it so much. And you know what, that's probably a good place to park this conversation. Now, I would very much love some time further down the line for us to get back together again and have a, a, a similar conversation about our experiences of, of, of gaming and reading and and what we're reading at some point in the future because I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed yeah. my black lagers and I've enjoyed finally having a first-to-face conversation with you on the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah, because we've had a we've had a few conversations to date, but nothing actually like this. Yeah, yeah, so it's been a, it's been great. Yeah, I've uh, really enjoyed it. I hope I've uh, uh, not gone out too far off the rails. <laughs> there weren't you any know, rails, though, were there? Th- there are no rails on this show. <laughs> yeah, we, we, there's only have, the moonbeam roads. We have a couple of drinks and we set off down the moonbeam roads and see where the leaders. So, well, you know what, Rob? It's oh, been an absolute man. pleasure talking to you, and uh, nice we one. have to do it yeah. again. Cheers, thanks so much. Okay, so I've got some uh, some some more guests in Derry and Tom's. Rob has just gone down the lift, and who pops out of the lift? But oh, tapping my bottle with my ring, so I've already fucked up my um, my recording <laughs> discipline. Take my ring off. There we go. So who pops out the lift? But uh, Neil, Graham, and Norman, three of our fantastic Breakfast in the Ruins patron, and we're here to just have a quick chinwag about our experience playing Stormbringer. Good evening, Neil. Good evening, Graham. Good evening, Norman. Evening. Evening. Hello. Nice to have you aboard. So, we decided a while back that we would have a bash at Stormbringer. After doing that episode and and having opinions about Stormbringer 3rd Edition, the Games Workshop version, we decided to actually give it a bash and play it as written. So we randomly rolled everything. So we randomly rolled everything hoping that the gonzo gods would look down on us and would get a Melnibonian sorcerer and would get a Darajorian, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, we didn't get a Philcarian farmer, which is a bonus. We didn't get any peasants. But what did we get? We got one warrior, three sailors, and a beggar with leprosy. Which, I think, you know, to some degree, is uh, is, is, is is very a la mode for Stormbringer. And, but of course, Neil, you got the beggar. So this whole random um, character generation thing... How did that live up to your expectations? Well, I've played Stormbringer many times before in the past. And the gods have never, the gods of chaos have always smiled upon me. Um, (laughs) And the lords of law have always abandoned me. 
Uh, I once got to be from Pantang. That was that was my moment of glory. But then obviously I failed to be a sorcerer. Yeah. Um, it, it's a hilarious character creation system. It really is. And, and I was kind of hoping for something really crap. And it, <laughs> it delivered, didn't it? You know? It really did. <laughs> Rubbing snails on myself and, uh, yeah. you know. Grubbing around in the desert, there is nothing like leprosy to back you up. Yeah, that's yeah. less to do with the system and more to do with my terrible GMing. But um, you, you ended up with a leper, and, and then of course there's this um, this random generation element where you get your core skills, all of which are crap because you're a, a, a beggar with leprosy, and then you get the opportunity to to roll some new skills. But of course it's random rolls, and you rolled appalling for all of those additional <laughs> skills. So you genuinely ended up with. Yes. An absolutely useless, incredibly incompetent beggar who couldn't even climb a ladder properly yes. because his fingers were knackered from leprosy. Nevertheless, my favourite one was I, I had um, first aid at two percent. <laughs> so if ever I wanted to actually first aid people, they would back away in fear. <laughs> my likelihood of additional injury was was far. <laughs> I want to hit you with this stick and see if you feel better. You know, no, no, no. Yeah. Not the leprosy stick. So that kind of, to some degree, your character lived up to expectations. So, Graham, you ended up with, I believe, were you the warrior or the sailor? You're the warrier, aren't you? Yes, sir, I am the warrior. I'm not so you were the party's one warrior. So how, 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 did, um, how did it meet your expectations of playing a, a high heroic Murkokian role-playing game? Well, the last time I played Stormbringer, I think it was the fourth edition, and it must have been about 30 years ago. Yeah. So I had this sort of um, this memory, this sort of golden, wonderful memory of being a teenager playing. This warrior was just useless, <laughs> totally useless, which is, you know, it's, it's a challenge to play when you're so bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into why the system doesn't really support um hero heroic escapades shortly we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more we'll talk about the the basic role play and percentile kind of deal but in in terms of um rolling up a warrior once again you were a, a, a picaridian farmer you actually rolled a warrior but of course statistics were particularly average and we tested that warrior in combat and it wasn't massively heroically successful was it It was pretty bad. I think the the first encounter, um, so it was just it's just a, a complete embarrassment all round. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to feel uh, hard to feel sort of heroic when you can't even can't even beat up sort of a, a standard peasant type person. Yeah, yeah, and of course, Norman, you want what you were on a one of our three sailors. So once again, random generation. And out of five characters, we ended up with three sailors. I think I did have the distinction of being the most rubbish one, though. <laughs> because, you know, most sailors have absolutely no dexterity. Yeah. Um, which was a bit of a drawback. But the thing I've always liked about like random rolling like this is it gives you something to hang your hat on. Mm. And it, it makes sure, it, you know, it fears you away from sort of power gaming and... Like metagaming, yeah, which is... Starbringer certainly does that. Yeah. 
I, I really hate the trend towards metagaming where mm. you have people who sit there with the latest rules and they've worked out you know, the character progression and what what spell or whatever is going to give them the highest DPS. Yeah, I've never even heard of metagaming until I was in a raiding guild in World of Warcraft. Mm. And that's when I first had exposure to it. Yeah, And to find people then backporting that into role-playing games came mm. as a bit of a shock to me. Because to mm. me, it was always, right, you're going to end up with some crap characteristics and that's part of your character and that's what you're going to build from. Yeah. And in a way it's almost, <clears throat> I guess it almost does not so much the high fantasy fiction, but maybe more the sort of grim dark stuff. We tend to have people that are rubbish to begin with Yeah. and, and they build upon that. And I think, you know, in a way this sort of approach encourages that you mm. are rubbish to start with. Yeah, I mean, I must, I must say, I've, I've, I think I've said this before. I've always favoured games where the character. I, I like low power gaming. I like, I like gaming where. Um, I, I remember many, many years ago, I ran a game of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and and all the players had never played it before, but they were all Warhammer Battle players, and they were all Warhammer Forty Thousand players, and they'd played D and D, um, and they'd got to high level characters, and I ran this game. Where there were, you know, one of them was, um, uh, God, what is it in Warhammer? A charcoal burner. <laughs> one, of them, one of them was a charcoal burner. One of them was um, like a, a, a temple acolyte. It was like 16 or something. And the other one, I don't know, was it a far, probably a farmer. Something really stupid like that. They were absolutely terrible. They were useless, useless at everything. Um, but but it, it, was, it was super entertaining because... That they had to go on, you know. This is again. This is the kind of crap games I run. One of the things that they had to do was the um, the head of the the temple asked them to transport some to go to another village to get a load of sausages for the for the religious festival. And on the way back, they got confronted by bandits, and they ended up just um, negotiating with the bandits and using um, kind of a discussion about politics and the plight of the poor. And ended up uh, bat- battering away half of the sausages in order to avoid getting into a fight, and coming back with half the sausages. And that was like a five-hour game. <laughs> so that gives you a good idea. This probably explains to you how disappointing my game has been. And if you if you had any high expectations of high heroism, you were in for a in for a sharp shock. But yeah, I re- really enjoy um, kind of low-powered gaming. But obviously. Something like Stormbringer, something like a Michael Mocott game, you want something perhaps a little bit more impressive. But it's interesting you make the point about metagaming. And I'd, 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 you're, Graham, Neil, you're, you're kind of gamers who, who go all the way back to the 80s as well and playing D&D and things like that. But metagaming was, is very D&D, isn't it? It's like you get the player's handbook, you get, you get okay, you roll your stock characteristics, but as, as, as additions moved on, that became a little bit more forgiving and less punishing and then you can you can go through the player's handbook you can go through the rule book and, and identify the best paths to power and and that's a really fucking boring way to game for me i don't know what you think yeah yeah, well, yeah I, I quite like i like the idea of having these worlds that you go into and then just being a normal person that you're yeah. trying to sort of navigate that world and just try to live in this fantasy world and you know you've got the expectations because you've read the books and 
you obviously the books are about heroes and things like that but when you're just a, a normal person and you've got to deal with all the stuff around you i, I, I enjoy that i think it's it's, a, it's the challenge isn't it yeah yeah absolutely and if you get into a, a, a strange encounter where you have to what, what was it you had to do a, a, a um you had to gamble with a scorpion yeah yeah yeah, yeah. or perhaps um you know, you have to come up with a, an interesting way of sorting out the uh, the saws and calluses on a beggar's fingers. You got to get creative, haven't you? Yes. And if so half an hour of the game revolves around mashing up some snails to make snail juice to treat a leper's saws, well, you know what? That's high fantasy, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. I think that's sort of a, a all of the games that I remember from <clears throat> from playing in the eighties. You know, they were all you were normal you mm. know you think back to like traveler character generation in traveler to me is always the the you know the the, the burning example of that where you'd spend hours rolling up your character and working their way through their service using the bureaucracy or something and yeah. you know good chance of ending up dead yeah and i think looking back the only game where that i ever played where you started out better than the people you were meeting was Twilight 2000. Yeah. Because you ended up, you started off with loads of money, so you bought yourself all the equipment. Yeah. And I remember playing a campaign of that where, you know, we were loaded to the gills, we'd drive around in a flash vehicle with all these guns and stuff. And then it, it was quite good because as the ammunition started running out and there was no way to go and buy more and suddenly it was sort of the reverse. It was all almost a sort of Call of Cthulhu-esque degrade uh, you know you yeah. you watch your sanity dropping yeah. and you're thinking oh my character's getting worse and worse in twilight 2000 it was oh no we've run out of we've run out of that type of ammunition yeah. we're in trouble now and yeah. you end up with clubs and stuff yeah but i just yeah i think i don't know just my memory of the 80s was it was just mediocre you played mediocre <laughs> characters <laughs> celebration of mediocrity maybe that was the 80s for you yeah yeah neil I, well, I remember the first game of um, Dungeons and Dragons I played, and one of my one of my players named his character Conan. And then partway through the game, when he clearly wasn't able to do Conan-y type things, he turned to me and he complained, and he said, well, "Conan wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't take this much damage from a simple sword blow." And it's like you can call your character Elric, you can call him, you know, <laughs> it doesn't make you Elric. The yeah. rules don't allow you to, you know, he sort of thought that if he'd just gone in with that that gung-ho attitude, yeah, he would have uh, been able to. But I, I we found very early on um, Tunnels and Trolls was the best system to recreate that kind of heroic, because uh, it was so much more flexible than everything else. Mm. And it, it's quite surprising that Kent and Andrew, who designed Tunnels and Trolls, is the same guy who designed the original Stormbringer because yeah. I think his original rule set is far more Morkokanian than his Morcock rule set. It's quite strange. You can you can you know bash out some serious heroic characters in that and have a, a whacking great time. You can have sorcerer um, sword slinging people. You know, whereas Dungeons and Dragons rules always you know oh, if you want to go the way of magic, my son. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot. I, I wonder if maybe his approach to the rule set was a bit like Moorcock's approach to writing, 
No, it it was like, oh, right, I've got to turn out this Michael Moorcock uh, <laughs> role-playing game. I'm going to sit in the toilet high on drugs for a weekend, drinking a bottle of whiskey and knock out, knock out an RPG system. Yeah, you know what? I, I, could, I, I could buy that. I really could buy it. Yes. Because, um, yes. I, I do find it an entertaining read, but it's it's a fairly slight read, is that book. Mm. And, and once you strip out the BRP stuff and the little bits that are related to RuneQuest, there's not a whole lot left. No, no. I would agree with that entirely. Yeah, I've uh, spoken a lot about RPGs, hasn't he? About the fact that he's not had much real contact with it. He's never been a role player. I mean, yeah. compare him to like George R.R. Mar- Martin. From my understanding, mm. most of his books come from role-playing game sessions. Yes, Wild Cards is is completely from his home-generated superhero game, isn't it? That was I know they did a um, a GURPS thing, but it, it came from his own game that they'd created with with other writers, mm. um, and that's a seriously good set of books. Much much better, I think, than um, than. Game of Ice and Fire. I, I, Game of Ice and Fire? Song yeah, of Ice yeah, and Song Fire. Of Ice Fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a hardcore gamer, George R.R. R. Martin, isn't he? Mm. Um, sadly, I, I think, you know, you can, you can certainly when it comes to influences and things like that, you can you can tell that he was heavily influenced by Moorcock. It's just a shame some of Moorcock's more um, personable qualities didn't rub off on him, because I don't know if you saw that recent um, nonsense about the... Uh, the awards thing for the science fiction and fantasy um, guild that is part of. If you've not, if you've not seen it, look into it. It came across as a real tool, a real tool. Um, but anyway, you know, we won't, we won't get into that. But um, it's interesting. You should, you should mention like you've got this thing where somebody comes along to play a game and they call their character Conan. And they have, a, they have an expectation that if you play in a fantasy mm. game, they have an expectation that they want to play someone wildly heroic and everything else. And um, I can understand that people might have that expectation. I can understand that people want to do it and, and they want to play that. But this ain't the game. <laughs> if that's what you want to do, this is not the game to do that with. And when you actually think about the, the characters that that game created for us, in, in the rule book, you've got these uh, statistics, haven't you, for... Um, for characters. And you've got, you've got statistics for Elric and other people and another... Um, you know, key people within within the mythos and within the um, the books of Moorcock. And, frankly, it all gets a little bit silly. So, you know, you've got... Uh... So what were your weapon skills in the region of? Well, in the 40s and 50s, weren't there? I know that Meek the Beggar had, a, I think, what is it, 10% or something? Which for... Yeah, 10% in pointy stick. Yeah, so, so so for listeners who are not particularly familiar with role-playing games, the basic role-playing system assigns a percentage value to a skill. And you have to roll under that on a, on a set of dice that will, will result in a result from 1 to 100. So Meek had a skill of 10%, which means that one time in 10, he would maybe hit something. So that would make for a very, very, very long fight. Um, and of course... Even if you got forty or fifty percent, and this is what we found when we were having the fights in the last uh, in the last uh, instalment, was that even if you've got fifty percent skill and you hit fifty percent of the time, your opponent has probably got fifty percent parry or fifty percent dodge, which reduces your average ability to hit something to one in four. Norman, I, I think 
what it does is it changes your approach to combat. Yeah. Is it stops it being, I'm going to Conan leap in with my mighty fuse exposed, slashing away. And it starts being a, okay, I'm going to play dead until this thing has, <laughs> has gone over me. And then I'm going to attempt to stab it. <laughs> Knowing which, that I'm probably going to miss. Yeah. Which, and which, even if which, I don't miss, it's probably not going to do very much. Yeah. And, and in fact, that, that very dramatic situation did occur <laughs> in our game. So, so you've got this, and, and it's, it's absolutely fine if in a dramatic scene, not necessarily in a role-playing game, in a dramatic scene, or, or even if you think about a fight in, in some kind of fiction or something like that, it's absolutely fine if there's manoeuvring, and shifting back and forth and looking for openings and all that business. But actually role-playing that by rolling dice is really fucking boring. And, and and it gets to a point where you can no longer make it interesting where a fight has gone on for something like 20 minutes and it's not even a massively powerful creature, but everybody just keeps rolling to miss and it, or it keeps parrying. It's not actually good fun, is it? Or is it? I don't know. I'm the GM and I'm thinking, I'm laughing all the way through and having a great time. It's not a particularly rewarding way of gaming. Graham? Yeah, Graham? I quite enjoyed it. In, in the sense of it... I enjoyed it. So just, um, it, it just becomes absurd ridiculous. It's actually quite good in the sense you know, that you, you're desperate to be a hero. Yeah. But you're just not. It just feels quite real. Yeah. Well, there is that. There is that. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe maybe I'm worrying too much about um, about your your experience as players, and actually, it's all fine. Um. Yeah, it, it's an odd one because I don't play that much, so I don't mind spending quite a while on a on a fight. Yeah. It, it maybe that's the difference is you know i haven't played that frequently or regularly for like 20 years or something and um yeah it's still a bit it's still quite new to me and i'm still enjoying that sort of lots of roles and missing each other and stuff yeah but i suspect if i've been playing solidly for the last 20 years i would be one of these people who are like, this is just rubbish yeah, I want combat to be resolved with the roll of one die, preferably not even that, with mm. some sort of narrative investment by the players working to GM and stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, I can see how the different people will have different expectations from the, from combat. Yeah, yeah. Over the weekend, I've been playing uh, King of Dungeons by Stevens's fantastic yeah. little short book um one of the cracking ideas in that is the escalation dice which goes on the table on the second round of combat and increases obviously up to a value of six so it, what it means is the heroes kind of get more and more powerful with each round um so you sort of ah. you, you know you sort of feel like the, the fight's going to and fro to and fro and then you basically it ends pretty pretty quickly and then you can get on with the game again. So if if you like that, you like clearing out the clearing out the room, it works fantastically. Well, that's a really interesting Great idea. mechanic, isn't it? And a good idea. Mm. A good idea if you kind of if you, if you want to escalate things and kind of get on with things. But I've I've just very quickly looked at the statistics for Elric in the Stormbringer role playing game. 
and an Elric when he's using Stormbringer has a hundred and twelve percent to hit and ninety eight percent to parry. Ah. Um, so you know, it's like okay, if if that player who comes in wants to play the hero, in, in order to make it work, this system has to give the big hero or the big bad those ridiculously overblown stats. So it doesn't really work for me. I kind of I kind of like the system because I've always been attached to to basic role playing. The system it's obviously used in Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest, which I've never really played that much. Um, certainly never played any of the Glorantha stuff. So yeah, I, I, I don't think it's particularly suited. But it's interesting you should mention like sort of a different system which allows you to progress things a lot quicker. Just spent the weekend playing Stormhack Saturday and Sunday with Ralph, and of course we discussed that on the last show. Um, or it might be the show before, by the time this comes out. And Ralph's taken a really interesting approach using elements of Stormbringer, but the elements were perhaps in Stormbringer you rolled a powerful character. So all the characters have got some kind of patron who they have a relationship with, be it a Lord of Chaos or an Elemental Lord or anything else. All of the characters have some kind of demonic, demon-bound possession. So that that kind of thing where previously I think I've, I'm on record as saying that I don't think it's particularly more cocky or particularly um, consistent with the Stormbringer world that everybody and the dog have demon-bound, you know, packets of cigarettes or or wallets or or anything else. But actually, that that is that is the deal with Stormhack is the players are intrinsically powerful from the very off, and the players and oh, sorry the characters. Um, actually have the ability to be powerful right from the very off, and it's actually it's, it's baked into the system. And one of the things I really love about what he's done is taking some elements of black hack, so it's a it's a roll under system. So of course D and D, it's you roll over a target number on on a twenty sided dice, don't you? Whereas this is the opposite; it's roll under, but you roll as high as possible under your skill. So what it means is that if you could be a, a pickpocket with a knife. Um, but if you attack something and your dexterity is, I don't know, 15 or whatever, and, you, and you're throwing a knife at it, if you roll 14, not only are you super successful, it's high, but within your skill. So it's, so it's, it's successful, so it does that much damage as a base, then you add the dagger damage to it. Which means that someone with an absolutely incredible level of skill with a knife will completely dispatch a warrior with a battle axe who's got a lower level of skill because it's all about the skill and this thing about so Paul in the game last week um, everybody's having this fight everybody's swinging and missing everybody makes a couple of connections but Paul because he had the appropriate statistics to be able to have a Larmerian sea axe which does a ridiculous amount of damage dispatches this thing in in one blow because not because he's massively skilled but because the equipment on the equipment list does 3d6 damage and he happens to have one so it's a completely different approach it's intrinsically powerful characters and also there's a, a really really nice way of encouraging the players to use magic and think about how they exploit the power of their demon and it was absolutely fascinating in play and i really really enjoyed it and i think we're going to get on to very shortly talking about what we want from from a more cocky and style game but it's definitely right up there with the things that i would consider the systems that i would consider to play that kind of game, but it means that I've got to shift my assumptions about what I want a Mococcian game to be. 
Because I think what Stormhack does very well is deliver a Stormbringer experience, RPG experience that's very, very satisfying, that heightens certain things from Mocock novels and makes all of the players capable of having that power, not just the Emperor of Melanibone or a super powerful wizard because everybody's got that, that capability. And that's what, I've, what I've learned is that's what a lot of players want from their Stormbringer game. You know, so I've, I've got to kind of alter my assumptions about what these games should be. It'll be interesting to 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 see if um, because obviously obviously something like the the original Eternal Champion, Erico's book, where you you're dealing with with a character who can uh, you know spoilers here about the whole of hu humankind obviously with Eldrin weapons but you know the those kind of skill levels those kind of ability levels. I would be quite scared to give to some of my players. Yeah. Um, but obviously, if that's the kind of thing that they would love to to do, we we did kind of homebrew our own Morcock game in the eighties when when some of my players really really wanted that experience. And I've got to say, after about a month or two of play, everybody resembled the character from the Stone Thing. They all had like replaced <laughs> hands, replaced arms. Um, yeah. Chaos gems embedded in various bits of their bodies. Yeah. I what we were not very under control back then, so I don't think anyone replaced their penis. <laughs> I think that was that was that was the line that they drew in the sand yeah. with their sandstone penis. I think probably, but yeah, uh, yeah it, it did get quite kind of crazy. Um, and if you look at some of the drawings, one of the drawings, I, one of the characters I draw is still one of the characters from that game. And he, he has an octopus tentacle as one arm and a demon claw. <laughs> Both eyes are replaced. Yeah. Uh, I, I think his foot is, is also, I mean, you know, if you give some people the power, they will just, you know, they will just power game. And it, it can be hilarious. Yeah. Sounds like something out of 40K. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. So, of course, that doesn't particularly help if you just want your characters to be able to get a, to go to the pub, or just you know maybe join the local thieves guild or, or 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 something like that, something a little bit more more kind of RPG classic. But of course, this this is all kind of thinking about the Young Kingdoms and Stormbringer and Elric, isn't it? And 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 there have been other role playing games, although not many of them. The Hawkmoon. I mean, if we think Stormbringer was lightweight in terms of content, well, the Hawkmoon game from the eighties was was even more lightweight. There's very, very little content in that, other, other than it's a very pretty box. So but, the famous left in the back of a taxi. That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I, I always have my feeling about that. It's like, yeah, oh, my dog ate it. <laughs> yeah. My and dog ate my homework, Chaosium, honestly. And there's um, the, the Dragon Lords, isn't there, which I haven't played. Yeah, and actually, Dragon Lords of Melanobana, I, I, I actually think it's quite a good read. Um and I, I didn't really get do the the D twenty boom or D and D three point five. So the system itself, I, I don't, I've got no real opinion of. But I, I think there's some quite good, interesting things in there. And I think if you were to use, I don't know, maybe even use D and D fifth edition or something like that for a for a a more cocky in game, I think there's there's a lot of good ideas in Dragon Lords. But bottom line is, I, I think for for a more cocky in game, it shouldn't just be about the young kingdoms. There's so much more available in Murkox 
broad oeuvre, isn't there? That that could be really, really interesting and really, really quite rewarding to get stuck into. So here's a question for you then, and we'll go we'll we'll go one by one. So so Norman, what are three things that you want in a Murkockian role playing game? And don't worry, because we can edit out long silences. This is the beauty of of podcasting. Yeah, it's fairly obvious from where I'm going to come from on this one. Um, I mean, probably my favourite thing of Moorcock is that whenever there's a party, there's a huge long list of of guests, and and there's usually Hawkwind involved. So uh, that's that's my first thing. (laughs) Right, so number one, a game must include a party at Ladbrook Grove that goes on for two weeks. Exactly. I think that's fair. Okay, that's one. Um, I I mean, this is it. My... I've read a lot of Moorcock. I enjoy, I enjoy all of his stuff. I enjoy the fantasy stuff. I find it, it's good, and I love the the whole multiverse eternal champion idea. Mm. But the stuff that I really enjoy of his is the more, I guess, left field, the Cornelius stuff, mm. uh, the Colonel Pyatt stuff. That's what I enjoy. Mm. And if I was, if someone was to say. We're going to do a Moorcock, Moorcock role-playing session. I'd be thinking, right, it's going to be free-form. It's going to be, it's going to be quite weird. It's going to be, I mean, I mean, to me, to me, games, different game systems. It's very much about the game setting. You know, I love what's what's been created around it, and I think with a Moorcock, a Moorcock role-playing game, I'd like to be almost world building yeah as part of it you know it being weird it being okay well and i guess something like um blades in the dark could be quite useful for this where you you're retrofitting bits into it it's like okay you know this is happening right well i've i've got you know it's my cousin that i'm shagging or something yeah is going to turn up in some kind of i don't know flying device and smash through the wall and save the day. Yeah. But we'll then get, you know, buggered by a beast bishop or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the kind of weirdness I kind of be looking for from yeah. it. Um, yes. So, so number one, we need long extravagant parties involving yeah. Hawkwind. Number two, it's got to be free form. It's got to be psychedelic. And at some point, it's got to involve Bishop Beasley getting buggered by Mitzi with a strap on whilst eating a Mars bar. Exactly. The Mars right. bar is an important bit. Yeah. <clears throat> Number three. I mean, yeah. I've asked quite a lot, to be fair. Yeah, I think in terms of making demands, I'd feel bad if I attempted to come up with a third one. Okay, no, um, that's cool. And actually, you know, I'm going to make a note of all this because, <laughs> of course, what we did originally say was that after we'd done this, we'd have this conversation and then would would play another game based upon all of our wants and desires for a Mococking role-playing game. Whether I run it or not, or whether somebody else in this virtual room runs it, remains to be seen. But, Graham, your top three things that you would expect or want in a Mococking role-playing game. Yeah, so uh, I think it's similar to Norman, really. So uh, the things I really like about Mococking are, well, the books I really enjoy are things like Behold the Man and um, mm. The Black Corridor, mm. where, where the, could you do a, an RPG based in The Black Corridor? 
I don't know, but it, 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 it's the stuff around that, the, the sort of ideas around that. And then there's also, you know, things like in the dancers at the end of time, which is just crazy. Mm. You know, that sort of immortals that can just do anything they like. Yeah. And that would be quite, I think that would be quite an interesting sort of setting for an RPG where, where you've got that complete freedom to do anything and just see how, how the people go with that and how they run with it. So I think that sort of freedom. Um, but just the, yeah, the sort of absurdities in that, in the sort of the dance at the end of time, I think would be good. So I think that absurdities. Um... Yeah, Norman, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I, I was going to say, the thing which struck me about the dance at the end of time is how it almost feels like it ties in with like the culture novels, the Ian Bank stuff, mm. where you've got a, a society where energy has become so cheap yeah. that you can do pretty much anything you want. you want to live on a floating island around a double sun you can have it yeah and it felt to me you know i'd i'd love to have an rpg in the culture yeah. universe and it I kind mean, of feels like that that happened. and the dances at the end of the time are they're really similar yeah i'm absolutely amazed nobody's done a culture rpg i think mm. it'd be a hard one to pull off yeah, I, well, yeah, I think you got a point there. It's, it's so massive and so broad, and and really anything's possible, isn't it? In a, in in the culture, yeah. and in his in his series of novels, it's it's like um, I remember thinking about the Ringworld RPG, and when I finally got my hands on it, it was like, well, how, how do you even do the Ringworld RPG? Because the Larry Niven known space is so massive. Before the culture, the only thing that was like the culture was Larry Niven known space in terms of breadth and 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 you know the amount of. Of, of books that all tie into the same kind of consistent universe. But sorry, we've got kind of gone off on one there. Graham, what else? Yeah, um, where was I? Yeah, so yeah, that sort of absurdity, that sort of uh, freedom there. Um, and yeah, you know, I do, I really enjoy his fantasy works, but I think the, the, the stuff that really stuck with me when I was reading his stuff was the things that weren't necessarily the sort of traditional fantasy. But then, you know, the whole sort of um, what's his name, Bastable. Yeah, yeah. That 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 would be brilliant because it just you know that's a lovely setting, a wonderful, uh, wonderful setting, and a wonderful place to be. And I really enjoyed those those books. That, that really was was a place that I I felt a lot more a lot more sort of I'd like to be there rather than some of the sort of fantasy stuff, other fantasy mm. stuff. Yeah. Anything else? Or are you sticking yeah. at two like Norman? Was that two? Yeah. Kind of rambled there. Oh, and Hawkwind, of course. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everybody agrees on more Hawkwind. <laughs> Neil, you're, you're a, a seasoned GM. You've been, you run a game, of course, all weekend for uh, for Grogney, haven't you? But what, what about you? What what do you want from a Mococking game? Either if you're running one, what would you want to, what would you want to do to deliver a Mococking experience to players? Or what would you want from a, from from the ideal Mococking and role playing experience. I suppose that I mean the thing is 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 I think we're all kind of saying that we'd quite like a Jerry Cornelius role playing game. Hmm. And I, I think maybe it could be just our age and our I mean I for a long time I I went off Moorcock's fantasy stuff and I really just championed I championed his later stuff, you know uh, 
so really all I was reading was Cornelius and um, Pyatt, uh, was Anti-Minjaws, Mother London, those kind of things. Um, and so if it was a role-playing game that, that generated that kind of experience, it would it would all be about the weird characters, wouldn't it? You know, we would be creating a slice of London and filling it with with amazing people and um i mean in a, in a sense i think a little bit of shoehorning you can pretty much get any fantasy game i was i still stand by tunnels and trolls but you could get tunnels and trolls to create any of moorcock's fantasy worlds with a bit of tweaking mm. you know um you could create the young kingdoms quite easily and have a walking great time and everybody have a magic sword you know, and you would you'd never go into that kind of Tolkienian, Scandinavian kind of fan fiction. You would you would be it would be pure more cocaine. Yeah. You know, um, I I was waving around before, but obviously people on the thing won't see it. But I've got a Luther Arkwright yes book here, um, which is the expansion for the Mithras game, which was the kind of sixth edition. Um, oh god, yeah. Originally it was it Room was Quest. Room Quest Six. Then it was yes. No, no. It's, yes. So this is how it went. This is how it went. It was Mongoose Room Quest Two. Then it was rebranded <laughs> as Legend. Then it was rebranded as Room Quest Six when Design Mechanism started up, and they took it off Mongoose, and then it became Mithras. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we've mentioned before that with RuneQuest and a lot of these other games, if you did, if you did like a, a family tree, it'd be like one of those heavy metal family trees from the 1980s. Yes. Remember those? Yeah. And, and, and how baffling they were. Well, you could do that with RuneQuest. Yeah, so Mithras is essentially RuneQuest 2, Mongoose RuneQuest 2, Stroke Legend, Stroke RuneQuest 6, Stroke Mithras. Yes. Actually quite a good system. I quite like it, but it's, yes. but it's still, yes, it's still BRP at base, isn't it? It is. It is. You still have those nagging, nagging um, percentages to hit. But yeah. the, um, the the Luther Arkwright book is incredibly good. You could run a Jerry Cornelius game with this. Certainly yeah. you could run a final program game with this. It's also got all your bastable stuff in. It's very steampunky. Um, you could recreate bastable without, without breaking a sweat with this book. Yeah. And you know, I, I think it's a it's a it's a cracker. The only thing it lacks, and I've checked, I've checked in the index, is this was actually no Hawkwind. <laughs> right. Obviously, it would need to be a, it would need to be added. Right, we've got to exclude it then. <laughs> oh, well, oh, well, that's a house rule, Hawkwind into it. Yes, yes. It's it's interesting you mentioned Mother London, because actually, if you think about um, uh, uh, an ideal, my idea of an ideal Mokokian campaign, right, would be. Um, the characters all start off as patients in a psychiatric clinic in London, a mental health clinic in London in the nineteen eighties, and everybody and and but it but it has to be a shared experience, a shared building experience, and I've got to mention not not only did I just play Stormhack over the weekend, but after we put the Stormhack episode out, Tanya on Twitter <laughs> dropped me a line um, and said that. She'd run a game where she had the players play Melnabinean nobles and noble houses using a system called Houses of the Blooded, which I'd never heard of. So I picked up the PDF and I gave it a read and I, and I printed it up on Docs Direct. I must say I'm in love with Docs Direct for printing up PDFs when you can't get things in print. It, it really is a great service. 
But she she ran a game for us, and we played it last Monday night, and it was super super collaborative, and it all it very much heavily relies on the players taking over the narrative to a degree. So the players can directly influence what's going on. So it, it takes a really engaged and generous GM to do it justice because the GM cannot be fixated on what their story or what their scenario is. They've just got to put together a framework and let the players' imaginations run wild. So if, if you used a, an approach like that and everybody started off as um, patients at a mental health clinic in London in, in, in the 1980s and actually the delusions are actually the wild extremes of Mococks multiverse and are actually real to those people but that psychiatric clinic is used as a framing device to kick off the story and then the campaign can go off in any different direction. That, to me, would be a Bob on Mocock game. Mm. Obviously, with a bit of Hawkwind thrown in. Um, so, and, and since since Tanya did Houses of the Blooded and since I played it, and I played a lot of one-shots over the last couple of years, and that was one of the most rewarding gaming experiences I've had in a long, long time. A long, long time. It was really fantastic. And and the players, Loz played as well, and the other two players I'd never met, and they were both excellent as well. And re- They'd played it before, so they knew what was coming. So it was, it was a bit more of a leap for me, and I think probably a bit more of a leap for Loz. I mean, you know, I speak for Loz because he isn't here, because he blew us out. But it was um, a, a bit more of a leap for us because it was so different. You know, such a different way of doing things. And it was, it was really quite exciting really quite exciting but you'd have to have that engaged player group who know that this is an expectation that it wouldn't be a game where and i'm not saying this is a bad thing because our home gaming group a couple of the people on board i wouldn't use the term passengers but they're there for the social experience they're there to hang out they enjoy the game but they're not massively active players in the game you you there's nowhere to hide in a game like that the game is as good as what you bring to the table. And that was a really interesting experience. And I think that would work really, really well. Not necessarily that specific system, but that like sort of ethos of, of what the game is about, that shared experience and shared storytelling. And then you can bring whatever you want to that, whether that be, you know, the Oswald Bastable approach, whether that be the Dance at the End of Time approach, whether that be a two-week-long party at Ladbroke Grove, any of those things, the Black Corridor, the Sundered Worlds, any of those things, all of them can play into it. And actually, you know, a player can take the lead in creating this element of the world, and then it's the GM's job to to make it happen for everybody. And I think that would be a really, really good approach, but mm-hmm. it, would take, it would take some doing, and it would take the right bunch of players to do it. Yeah, I, I can... I can see it being incredibly challenging. Mm. It's not some. It, it's the kind of. It's the kind of game we used to occasionally have, <clears throat> you know, back before jobs and children and stuff, mm. where it would be jobs. go off to someone's for a weekend and you're <laughs> you're playing for the weekend. I think that's what it would be because it sounds like you'd almost be starting off as a therapy session. Yeah, it's, it's a group session really. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah, you would have to you'd have to build upon that. But yeah, I can see it. If it worked, it would be fantastic. Mm. It'd be one of those games where you would remember it for the rest of your life, and you would evangelise about it to people and say just how amazing it was. Mm. 
And if you ever tried to repeat it, it would go very badly wrong if if it went that well to begin with. Yeah. I, I could see it being very, very tricky. But at the same time, it, that's pretty much exactly what I'd be looking for from a Moorcock game. Mm. You know, it's it's uh, that exploration yeah. of of a, of the world. Yeah. And it's your world. It's not Moorcock's world. I think yeah. that's that's probably part of it, is it's taking you're not playing the young kingdoms you're playing this is our world that we're creating there yeah so it's taking a cue isn't it and then running with it yeah graham were you about to come in yeah so, so, so the way you describe it, it's almost um almost like it's the sort of almost gm looks type game where you've got the framework but you the gm is not it's kind of there to facilitate that but not necessarily to control what's going on mm. Yeah, but of course that, that that was not even a half-formed idea. <laughs> was, uh, so I think there'd be so many possibilities, but yeah, it would it would be incredibly difficult to actually implement, particularly since we've all got jobs and families, and we can no longer just take acid and spend the weekend <laughs> free-forming it and seeing where things go. So yeah, I, I did I think, a, I did a. I did a role-playing game once where all the characters started off as amnesiacs in a clinic, which I, I borrowed from uh, Nine Princes in Amber. Yeah, Roger yeah. Zelazny, where the character wakes up and he doesn't know who he is. And you can just start throwing ideas at them. So I, I had them suspicious of, you know, are we important? Are we not important? Why, why are we here? What's going on? And then I was able to dribble memories at them and leave them when they went back to their house, their various dwellings, there were cryptic notes and it worked incredibly well. But what I was doing was I was basically building it from, I had no idea who they were either. Hmm. I was kind of JJ Abramsing it really, hoping that good ideas would come to me as we played and everything came from them and it was fantastic. And their characters in the end, it was one of the best campaigns we played. Um, and they created their characters on the fly without knowing Mm. Um, with me just throwing random stuff at them. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really exciting way of playing, doing things like that, really trying something different. And it, it does make me pine for the days when you were able to maybe invest a little bit more time in these things and worry less about real life and the real world getting in the way. Because, of course, as we've found over the last few weeks, just, just getting all five of us to the table um, every fortnight to play this game and I think every GM on Twitter uh, at the moment would say the same thing and it's, it's it's not because of anything other than real life takes precedent in the way that it didn't do when you were 15 <laughs> which is kind of kind of annoying in some ways you know I'd love to be 15 again and going through all of this again um, you know but there's there's m many things I'd love to have have my time again and do, do slightly differently or, or even do exactly the same way because that's that's part of getting old, isn't it? Is reflecting back and thinking, I wish I could do it like I used to do it. You know, for example, um, today my character um, fell through a floor by fluffing his dexterity roll, despite having the highest dexterity in the party. Did his knee in, and I thought, well, this is quite ironic because I actually did my own knee in. So I'm, I, I was, I kind of felt like I was larping because I can't even sit still without fucking my knee up in front of this desk. But in a spectacularly unheroic fashion, I blew my knee out getting off the sofa. <laughs> not not falling through a floor in a deserted city near Rolin Krenar. Oh no, 
getting off the fucking sofa. That's how I did mine, Ian. Good Lord. Terrible. So we've got a pretty good idea of, of what we would like from a game. You know, notwithstanding the fact that the idea about the patients in the psychiatric clinic and everything else is probably a tall order, you know, given, given what we've kind of discussed. But in terms of... I think it's more than achievable to either find a system or just um, kitbash a system or hack a system to do exactly what we've just discussed, which is a game which takes into account all of those elements. So there's key things like um, his, his wilder, more weird, out there con conceptual science fiction. Things like Black Corridor, Behold the Man, Dances at the End of Time, Warlord of the Air, the Oswald Bastable books, Jerry Cornelius books. Maybe, maybe we should be thinking, forget the swords. Let's go for needle guns and airships and power rings and, you know, um, intrinsically powerful characters in increasingly bizarre situations. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I mean, needle gun, obviously, it covers the Hawkwind bit as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. does. Um, yeah, so maybe we should be playing Psychedelic Warlords, the role-playing game. <laughs> yeah. um, Roll your character class. I am a veteran of the Psychic Wars. I'm a warrior of the time, or I'm a veteran of the Psychic Wars. or Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So maybe what we should be doing is is Hawkmoon's Hawkwind Stroke Blue Oyster Cult the role playing game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Queens of Deliria. Yeah. Will be our first expansion. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Right. It is an idea. I'm going to throw this one out there. Now I'm I'm not suggesting that if we do proceed beyond this Stormbringer game, which I hope we do finish, because I, I, despite everything we've said, I am enjoying it, I am a little bit in love with Stormbringer 3rd Edition. For all of the reasons we've criticised it, I am really enjoying it. Um, but maybe the next game should be um, the Deep Fix, the RPG. And yeah. then um, we'll just uh, we'll spin it out from there. We'll, we'll take that car concept, the Deep Fix RPG, and we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. But... You know, we're gonna have a discussion further down the line about who might want to pick that up and, and, and take it on as a GM. How does that sound? Yeah, my hand's staying down on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to play, <clears throat> but yeah. Because um, uh, Loz has uh, got together. Uh, I think he's he's been working on a Corum game, on a Hawkmoon game. Um, but and and I think we'll, we can definitely line that up for the future, but. I'm, I'm going to give it some some serious thought, and I think when's the last time you GM'd Summit Graham? Oh Christ, about thirty years ago. But, so, um, but all, all my current efforts about GMing is in my Guy M. Smith um, yes. game that I'm attempting oh, to do. Oh yes, yes. So I'm doing lots of research in that. So I, I I would be reluctant to take on another challenge because that that is where my heart is at the moment. Yeah. For, for, for GMing. That's fair. And funnily Perhaps. enough, earlier on this afternoon, I was looking through some of my gaming notes on my desktop and I found a document called Quincy versus Giant Scampy. And I thought, what the fuck is this? And it's those tables we put together on Twitter. <laughs> when we were talking back and forth on Twitter about random, randomly generating um, that, that mashup game of, of 70s TD, TV detectives versus giant yeah. critters. So I've, I've still got those tables, oh. but yeah, the document's called Quincy versus Giant Scampy. 
that sounds like a perfect game. Fair enough. So, um, well, giants, giant sea creatures ripping Cabot Cove apart, and Miss Marple with a spear gun. Yeah, not Miss Marple. What's her name? Oh, murder she wrote. What's her uh, name? Uh, Angela Lansbury. Yes, but Jessica, her character, Jessica I can't Fletcher. remember her character's name, but yes, Jessica with a spear Fletcher. gun. Yeah. Jessica Fletcher with a spear gun. Yes, yeah. giant scampi, Cabot Cove being torn apart. <laughs> and then obviously you just have the fog rolling in, couldn't you, from a good 70s. Uh, mix it, mix it um, with the brain-warping James Herbert fog yeah. mixed in with zombie pirates uh, and Adrian Barbeau in a lighthouse. Yeah. It's, it's basically an epi- episode of Garth Marenghi, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, spot on, spot on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, the field is narrowing. So what about you, Neil? I'm. I would be. I would love to do it. Uh, I'm a massive fan of Hawkwind. Um, <laughs> I personally know some of them, so you know, I could try and uh, I could try and get some uh, ideas together. I would love to do the deep fix role playing game. I really would. Oh, okay then. So, um, if yeah. if you're up for it, we we, yeah. we might play this uh, round this off in a couple more sessions, and then uh, if if you're game for it, and then. The reins are yours. Thank you very much. Because actually, I've, I've wanted to play your games the last couple of, of virtual cons. And, oh, yeah. And just not managed to hook it up. I booked onto one of them once, but ended up, didn't get my first preference and went to another game. Not that those games were perfectly fine and enjoyable. Um, and this occasion, I think before I realised that yours clashed, I'd booked onto Ralph's Stormhack game on the back of doing that episode a couple of weeks ago. Oh. But... If I don't have to wait until the next virtual con, and we can actually crack on and, yes, uh, and uh, yeah. have a play of the deep fix, the RPG, then I will be happy as a pig in muck. We should be easily with a Mars bar. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing I'd like to raise about on the um, Stormbringer uh, rules is the uh, the major wounds table. Oh yes, which, which is wonderful. Is, <laughs> I think more. Rule book should have such things. Yeah, it's. I think the major wounds table is there to take away the fact that to, to kind of mitigate the fact that they got rid of rune quests limb by limb damage, because of course in rune quest it's. I think it's kind of like sort of a, a standing joke in rune quest that someone loses their left arm every game, because of course if 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 a wep- if someone even with an average weapon with an average strength bonus rolls an average roll and hits someone's arm it's coming off <laughs> so they got rid of that um that element but instead they thought oh well it's now far too forgiving so let's have a major wounds table <laughs> which did we roll on that twice you missed yeah, this I... neil we had two rolls on the major wounds table last game i, I got caught on that yeah yeah i, oh, it really reminds sorry me of... I missed it yeah. it reminds me of um i'm sure Rollmaster. Rollmaster. Yeah. yeah Rollmaster was hilarious and space master as well they get a spatula yeah, yeah. There is oh, all that remains is a pile of dust. Back yeah, that was, the, that was the energy criticals table, wasn't it? I remember that. Yeah, yeah. energy weapons criticals table. Yeah, it was excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, I regret never playing or running Space Master. I quite liked it because there was there were a lot of elements of Dune in it with body shields and all mm. that business. Well, there was a lot, a lot of nice elements in Space Master, but yeah, nobody ever wanted to play that our role master because map was bad enough in terms of complexity, but. Yes. Funny enough, there was yeah. a conversation on Twitter a couple of weeks ago about um, 
complex weapons systems and someone brought up Phoenix Command. I remember Phoenix Command. Yeah. Oh we my were, god. We, we discussed using that as a drop-in combat system. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was the tail end of the 80s. So. Yeah. <laughs> Excess it was, was um, all, all abound. Apparently they were actually rocket scientists, weren't they? Yeah. Who when that uh, when that system failed, they went back to being rocket scientists. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's one of the we reasons we played we've... one evening of um, leading edge um, aliens. Yes. And we didn't even encounter an alien. We were marines. We arrived on LV four twenty five or whatever it was, and it was just a couple of settlers who were left alive with guns, yeah. and they pinned us down, and we exchanged about three or four volleys each. It took five hours to do <laughs> uh, oh, it was, it was exhausting and we said it's not really kind of got the high energy of the movie has it yeah and the gm went no 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 yeah. it hasn't no. i think that's what doomed the uh the aliens first aliens role-playing game to failure was being attached to that system but what what i forgot mm. what i completely forgot until this conversation was they also got the license to the lawnmower man and they did a lawnmower man role-playing game with the same system and I actually had it at one point in the 90s and flogged it on eBay. But yeah, Leading Edge Games, they must have spent a fortune on these licenses mm. and attached them to that I, system. Oh, I liked the Living Steel. Um, the I've got a couple of supplements for it. Uh, of course, the rule book is ridiculous, yeah. but it's a good setting. It's an interesting, um, interesting far future setting that was way more interesting than Traveller, yeah. which is very pedestrian, obviously, isn't it? By comparison, yeah. But while this conversation was going yeah. on, I looked to my left and looked at the shelf and I thought, I'm sure I've still got it. And I pulled off the shelf Edge of the Sword Volume 1 Compendium of Modern Firearms by Kevin Dockery. Mm. And uh, have a listen to this. So, damage ratings in Edge of the Sword are based on the tissue disruption caused by a projectile's impact and energy transfer. This is expressed as a two-number formula. A divided by B, colon, A equals the possible inches of penetration, B equals the cubic inches of disruption per inch of penetration. For example, 9mm NATO ball, 23, stroke, 0.14. This formula can be calculated for any cartridge, provided certain statistics are known. Total damage equals, in brackets, ME times CS, close brackets, divided by 10, times BF. ME being muzzle energy... CS being cross-section of the bullet, BF being bullet factor, brackets, C chart. Absolutely ridiculous. But I remember. I'm, but fortunately, this is a ridiculous book, an absolutely ridiculous book. The picture of Kevin Dockery is brilliant. He stood there with a grenade launcher and a big pair of sunglasses. Um, but fortunately, as, as, as well as having all that nonsense, it did also have a load of damage tables for handguns, submachine guns, battle and assault rifles and sniper rifles, for Edge of the Sword, Cyberpunk, Hero System, Call of Cthulhu, Twilight 2000, something called MSPE. What's that? What system's that? No idea. And D20 system. So, And, and also, it would uh, help you... Oh, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. Oh, yes, uh, of course. Yeah. 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 So, whilst it's a 240-odd page book, Fortunately, if you look in the appendices, there are two usable pages, which you know could be worse, couldn't it? 
Could be worse. Anyway, on that ridiculous. Can I just? Can I, sorry, one last thing before yeah. uh, just the the deep fix role playing game. Yeah, yeah. The uh, picture I'm going to put in the back. I don't know whether anyone's ever seen Lemmy the movie. No. Uh, one oh. thing somebody gets him. Yes. One they get him into a tank, um, and he's actually firing guns from this tank. That's going to be the picture that's in our weapons section. Is Lemmy in a tank? Yes. I'm, it just I'm, has to be done. I'm buying into that straight away. Is right, that, the, so, is that the, the documentary which just spends his time drinking Jack Daniels and Coke yes, and playing is. the quiz machine at the bar? Yes, playing the, playing the poker at the bar, yes. And, yeah. and shopping for CDs as well. It's a fantastic film. On that Lemmy tank muzzle velocity versus bullet factor shaped bombshell, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, joining the discussion. Thank you for playing the Stormbringer game. And uh, maybe in six months' time, we might do this again and talk about the Deep Fix RPG. But for now, that concludes the Breakfast in the Ruins role playing game triptych. So thank you all very much. Cheers. Thank you. Massive thanks to Rob, Norman, Graham and Neil for the thoughts and insights and also to Paul and Laws who were part of that game too. Rob's podcast, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy, is on Anchor FM and all other good podcatchers. Playing that Stormbringer game has been a good laugh throughout and we've also been thinking on gaming in other genres too and Graham, Neil and I had a little exchange a while back about the late British author Guy and Smith even becoming maybe a tiny little bit obsessed with him for the last couple of months. Guy passed away back in December 2020, but it just so happens that this week a new Twitter account launched that's promoting his work and fronting a move to revise the Guy and Smith website, launch a newsletter and keep his extensive works in print, and in many cases get them back in print for the first time in quite some years. And you can follow that account at GuyNSmith1 on Twitter and get on the mailing list by emailing blackhillbooks at gmail.com. Ever since Phil and I covered the rats for Halloween last year, Guy's work has been chipping away at the edges of the Breakfast in the Ruins itinerary, and I'm sure we'll take a look at something crabs-related at some point this year. In other news, Dave Dempster, aka the Tentacled Whisperer, sent me a magnificent Eternal Champion t-shirt. Cheers, Dave. I've mentioned the band Eternal Champion before on the show, and they are very tasty indeed. On the subject of music, in the next couple of shows I'll be talking to Dave Washman about his rock project Cernus. Now, we played Cernus on the last birthday episode, but it was really great to hook up with Dave via VidLink to California and talk about his music and influences in more depth. I'll also be talking to the experimental electronica artist Imria, so if you want to do some homework ahead of that, check out their Bandcamp pages and support their epic music. Right, time now to thank our marvellous patrons. First up, though, is Miles Reed Lobato. I missed Miles off the list on the last show because I'm a goofball. So, Miles, a.k.a. the Viceroy of Coffee, massive gratitude for your support. You arrived on the scene just in time to take in the delights of Danus, and I think that definitely marks you as having a particular level of masochism, given that you didn't immediately withdraw your support afterwards. In fact, that goes out to all of you. Tash still hasn't forgiven me for forcing her to read Danus. Fortunately, though, we did manage to find a taker for her copy of The Dark Straits of Reglathium. Well... I say find, it was more of a direct appointment really, so unlucky Graham. I've still got three copies in my house, and because I'm something of an idiot, I went ahead and picked up Mike Sirota's revision, The Black Seas of Maldrinium. I haven't read it cover to cover, I've only lightly skimmed it, and I can confirm, yes, the typos have been addressed. 
but on the other hand, the five pages of Favor have not. Nor has the description of the size of some breasts as being beyond belief. Or has the rampant use of invented illogical units of measurement. But the glossary has swollen from two pages to seven. So swings and roundabouts, I suppose. Mostly swings. Shit swings, to be fair. Anyway, salutations to the chaos engineers hard at work throwing the Diclone drive overboard. Andrew Cyclunus, Andrew Van Ness, Ben Fletcher, Dave Washman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, John Timothy Watt, Mal Pertwee, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, and Tony Malazzo, and so Jugaderos, sweating their way through a high-stakes session of an old Hull card game called Shithead, the loser's punishment being a gift set of all five volumes of the Danus saga. They are Alexander Harris, Clarkey, Craig Ledley, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Randall Gatlin. Cheers for the beer, Randall. I'm saving that one for the next show with Loz, where it will be revealed in all of its terrifying, syrupy glory. Stephen Round, Miles Reed Labato, of course. Tom Murphy, check out Colossive Press, there's some fantastic new zines on there. And, joining us, post-Danus, Gareth Wilson. Welcome to the tables, Gareth. Our thanks too to Tim Cardos, occupant of the spaces between the tiers. And finally, of course, to our patron demons. Ever patient, awaiting their time in ascendancy as the cosmic balance swings. Ed Scott and the Blade of Arizona. Graham Holden, a.k.a. the Duck Point Sailor, a.k.a. Apkalu of Enmakar. Paul Hillary, the Lapsed Gamer, the Grazed Knuckled Ninja and Counter of Coin. Gemma, a.k.a. Dread Mortmain, smasher of stair-based coronaventions. Nathan Gouljas, belter of rifts and guardian of the legacy of Solomon Cain. Neil Burton, the Destiny Knight, sketcher of things and proponent of the emollient qualities of snail juice. To Joe Monty, traveller of interstitial planes and curator of words of power. And once again, I'll remind everybody, that Joe's handiwork with the Saga Press editions of the Elric Saga are now available for pre-order and the releasing from September. To Bob Macmillan, arcane master of letters, particularly typewritten ones that invoke warm memories and send me down a rabbit hole of searching out and buying an old Remington Rand because I have no impulse control. And of course to Norman, the baker on the rocks and the OG patron. Okay, enough of my yakking for now. We'll be playing out again with another journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly inspired track by Nand. And the Nand Soundtracks Bandcamp page is up and these tracks will be available soon, so bookmark it now. The journal will return in the next couple of months with chapter 11. And we're still working on our re-recording and re-scoring project for volume 1, i.e. chapters 1 to 7. And I understand that the hard copies of volume 1 of the journal reach the various parts of the globe they were dispatched to. So it's very cool for me to know that there are copies as far afield as Zurich... Brooklyn, Massachusetts, Tennessee, Melbourne, Australia, Wallasey, and Bruff. Volume 2 will probably be complete in the late summer, so watch out for that. Until next time, you can gab with and follow us on Twitter and Instagram on the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email the show at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The blog is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, that has a few Patreon exclusives. But in the meantime, take care. Stay safe 
I'll see you all again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.